Welcome to the Eclectic Gamers Podcast. Today is Saturday, June 30th, for some of us. For some. And it's episode 65. I'm Tony. And I'm Dennis. And we have a guest once more, once again. This time, we have someone who is a little bit in the future from an American perspective. He is a highly skilled competitive player forged in the fires of the outback itself. A pinball streamer known for his love of potted plants. The Eclectic Gamers Podcast is most pleased to welcome the advocate of Avatar, the disser of Demolition Man, the streaming sensation of the Melbourne Silverball League, and the smart host on head-to-head pinball. Martin, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. You uh, you got that all absolutely right. I I aim to I aim to please, or at the very least, have accurate research. So <laughs> yeah. uh, we have a link in the show notes for any of our listeners who have not happened to hear Head to Head Pinball, which is the podcast that you do with Ryan C. Or uh, if they haven't seen your Twitch channel, Melbourne Su- Silverball League, I've got a link to that as well. But do you want to know for our intro here? Do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself or about what you do in the hobby of pinball? Yeah, look, I think probably now most known for head-to-head uh, pinball podcast. Before that, I did start running a – it was a monthly tournament born out of two things. First of all, uh, when I went to Indisc uh, probably two years ago, so January two years ago, I, I really wanted to, to see how the US scene put on a great tournament. And in Australia, the, the tournament scene had become, you know – quite 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 large there was a lot of different tournaments running in each of the the major cities but i wanted to sort of do one that was probably a little bit next level when it came to sort of the the image and how it was promoted and how it was run and what the prizes were so that that was where melbourne silver Bowl league was born and one of the things that we also did was we streamed um the finals of the tournament it was a selfie league um and then i ran that for probably 18 months and then there was this crossroads where I had to decide to either keep it going or shut it down. I decided to shut it down for, for whatever reason. And within 24 hours of shutting it down, I heard Ryan C on a couple of other podcasts. And I just had this moment where I said, right, I'm going to contact Ryan and start a podcast. And that's what we've done. And, and it's been going for nearly a year. We're about to do episode 50. It is a weekly episode. Um, and it's been a pretty crazy ride so far. Yeah. And you know, the, the rumors swirling in the air are that, uh, Twippy may be in the future for head to head. You guys have been scoring a lot of major interviews. And what I really like, uh, you're, you're one of my top shows. Actually, I'll go ahead and say you are my top podcast to listen to. Thank you. And, uh, well, you guys earned it. Uh, I don't, I don't give this away lightly. <laughs> so it's just, uh, I mean, in terms of the, the dynamic, the chemistry, as a lot would say, between you and Ryan, you both come at the hobby from very different perspectives, but it integrates really well. You guys get along together, at least on air, you do. And, the uh the content that you generate in terms of both the the research aspects and things that you've brought up on your own through your show and then bringing on guests uh of a myriad of backgrounds so i get to learn about the australian scene which i am incredibly ignorant of otherwise and then also you get a lot of industry people on at this point so you're really the go-to podcast to learn about a lot of this hobby at this point because your weekly format really keeps keeps that pace going i just i think it works really well um but 
I'm, I'm very grateful that you're slumming it with us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, well, you're also one of my favorite podcasts as well. And, uh, and I know that you're, you sort of also mentioned about, you know, your journey and how it was, it was pinball and gaming and also tabletop. Um, and now it's sort of pinball and gaming. And, and that's great for me because they are the two different things that I do. Obviously now more pinball than, um, console gaming, but you know, as a lot of people went through that phase where, um, you know, probably during the 2000s, pinball sort of went away and people got more into consoles. Well, so did I. I, I was a, a massive console gamer. And as a, <laughs> I've mentioned a number of times, I also was uh, one of these people that succumbed to World of Warcraft as well. Um, so did we. So, so did, did we. we. We never talk yeah, about it on the show. We but. talk about it. But, but the interesting thing about the podcast is I know you sort of said that we, we get all these, um, you know, the industry interviews. That's not what we planned to do. We, we actually just planned to do a, a podcast from, for the Australian audience from an Australian perspective because, um, you know, Pinheads was the, the go-to podcast in Australia and the, the, the quality of that podcast was just phenomenal and it was, it was a monthly format. Um, they sort of went on hiatus for, for a little bit. So we thought, well, let's just do something that fits into that slot. And it was always just going to be Ryan and I just having a bit of banter. We, I, I've sort of mentioned a number of times we didn't know each other before we started the podcast. I think I'd met him twice. Once I, I bought some um, blades from him, and once he did come along to one of my streams because he had an America's Most Haunted that we streamed. Um, but I think we've just sort of lucked in that we we are very different. Um, we obviously do have a different perspective, but yeah, I'm, I'm surprised as most people that we do have great chemistry. Um, and I think the, the interviews that we get, I think just came out of more and more people listening. Um, and I know that you're, you're into stats and I'm massively into stats as well. And, you know, when we first started, the audience that we had was 65% Australian, probably about 25% American and then the rest of the world. And now it's 65% American and about 30% Australia and then the rest of the world. Yeah. Um, and the thing with the interviews is I, I feel that it, it's noticeable even from the listener perspective that that's grown organically. That wasn't, yeah. it was clear from the start that that wasn't a strategic focus. It's just the way that the show has evolved. Um, and it, it works really well. And I like how you guys conduct those. Tony and I, we do interviews on occasion. We like this. We like yeah. to do the guest host thing, fill in our weaknesses that way and have a discussion rather than go and do interviews. So we don't, we don't like to do a lot of them. Yeah. We did some in the beginning, but it got to the point where it was, uh, more annoying to go do an interview where instead of just having somebody come on and be with us and talk and joke and stuff, it felt better. Mm -hmm. Just for, yeah, for our approach, but I like to listen to them. So <clears throat> I'm glad that there are others that are, that are executing very well in that area. Yeah. Well, thank you, Martin, for the for the introduction, uh, Tony. I everyone knows about you already, but we don't know what's happened over the last couple of weeks. Nothing. It's been really hot. It is. It's been really hot, and I work outside all day. So yeah. I come home, and I haven't done much of anything. I haven't even played many, very many video games. Not even BattleTech. Not a little bit. Uh, there was a major patch we made we, that made major changes, so I started a whole new playthrough. And I got a ways into it, and I've also been – I finished my my Naval Insanity XL uh, run as the Italians, and I started a run as the Germans. And it's going very 
well. But that's all stuff that's slower paced that I can just do here and there and stop and go do stuff with the kids and and do various other things. Because mainly I've been reading and relaxing because it's been just so darn hot. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, uh, I had last week off of work. My coworkers are wondering if I even work anymore because I've been taking so much time. Well, it's like every episode or every episode we have, you're you're either it's, I was off work last week, or I'm off work next week, or right. I'm off work this week. I think week. after this, I'm finally have less than 600 hours of vacation. <laughs> I'm I. This is from years of accumulation where I just could not get away because of contracts and such that I had to service, and I, I I'm free of a lot of that which is not good for the organization, but it is good for me. <laughs> and so, yes. Yeah, so I had last week off and I finally finished Prey. I'm still trying to formulate my thoughts on it because I have very mixed feelings about that game. Uh, so I'll talk about that at a future point. I played and finished The Evil Within 2, which is something of a spiritual successor to the Resident Evil series. At least the first game was. So again, I'll, I'll talk about that more in a future episode. And so I've been playing now with my continuing my monster theme, Dead Rising 4, which is the campy, silly, you're in a shopping yeah. mall and you get to play dress up and all that stuff. And, and you so, get to use duct tape to turn a baseball bat and some other random stuff into a lightsaber. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, realistic stuff. Yeah. So I'm working on that right now. Uh, so that's really what I've been doing. Uh, not a lot. I haven't played a lot of pinball in the last week. I was hoping actually while I had that break to get a project and work on another project, but all the ones that were available, uh, were not of interest to me. So I just had to kind of put that off to the side. Uh, but before we go into the pinball segment and for the listeners, we will have a, a pinball and a video game segment this time. Uh, I do have one correction from our last episode, the E3 episode. Uh, this one was on me. Actually, there are probably a lot of corrections, but this is the only one I know of. And that is while I was discussing Tales of Vesperia, the definitive edition, I said the prior game uh, release of it was where the DLC was only available in Japan was on the PS4. It's actually a PS3 game. So oh, no. I was... No. I was Get I the said, rope, boys. I said Gen 8 instead of Gen 7. So. Get the rope. Yep. Yep. I probably can't ever talk about E3 again. My cred. My cred is crud. <laughs> so let's move into news. And we're going to start off with one that I know Martin's already spoken about on uh, his show, Head to Head Pinball. And that is Dutch. We've spoken at length about Dutch pinball, Tony. Yes. And in warm, glowing, wonderful, loving terms. Well, your mileage may vary on that interpretation, but uh, <laughs> and we'll put that to the test here. So there was a newsletter that Dutch pinball put out and announced that there was a group calling itself the Seattle Seven is starting up a GoFundMe to help Dutch pay its legal fees for the ARA conflict. And while this was going on, Dutch was auctioning off a prototype build of the Big Lebowski. I'm assuming one of the Zytec ones and selling things as far flung as t-shirts to plastic sets on its website. Uh, the only other thing I wanted to note on that is the prototype is no longer, I guess the bidding's done. I don't know what it ended at. The last I saw was 16,000 euros. And wow. the mm. newsletter that said all of this was, in my view, surprisingly chipper. Uh, so Martin, I know I've, I've heard your thoughts before. Not all of our listeners might have. What, what do you, what do you think of yeah, either this or just Duchess position in the hobby at this point? I've sort of sort of been really hopeful um, with Dutch, and uh, I've said I've got I've got a very close friend of mine who's in on uh, an, uh, a um, Big Lebowski. So I'm I've sort of tried to be positive because I really want him to get his machine. 
Um, but I, I'm, I'm now just, I'm, I'm done. I'm done with Dutch. I think that now, um, I don't think they've necessarily become pariahs at that stage because I don't think the real story has come out just yet. But there are a lot of, depending on who you speak to, very opinions on what's actually gone on about, you know, whether they actually did pay for any machine from the original contractors ARA. Um, whether they, you know, when they first said that there was delays and they talked about it was board set issues, whether that was a real thing or not. Um, so I, I certainly don't think that there is a high level of trust at the moment. In fact, for me now, there's a high level of distrust. So when this um, newsletter came out, uh, you know, I almost did a face palm. I was just like, this, this is, I don't know, it, it almost felt a bit inappropriate that they're, they're asking for more money. Well, sure, they, they're selling some goods. There's, there's machines, there's play fields, there's, you know, decals or decals. Um, and, and that's fine if you want to have some money. But then people setting up a GoFundMe, for, for me, I feel that that's a little bit misguided because the money that has already been given to them for people that have paid either part or full for their machines is gone. They don't have money to pay for legal fees. They don't have money to go into production with the new contract manufacturer, Zytec, we believe. So a GoFundMe, it, it seems like it's more money for bad. Okay. Tony, uh, you've been pretty hard on Dutch pinball over the last few months. Uh, has this changed your mind? Have you come around? I'm not surprised that their announcement seems surprisingly cheery. How could they not be cheery? They found yet more people who are trying to <laughs> give them money and get more money for them not doing anything. I'm in the wrong bloody business. That's what it is. I mm -hmm. need to set up a pinball company, fail utterly, make $40 million, and laugh my way to the bank. That's Apparently, that's what I need to do. I don't know if they made $40 million, <clears throat> but there was a conversion for the yeah, exchange rate. Yeah, but still, so it, does, it doesn't matter. I mean, it, it's it's it has moved beyond – I mean, it was already a joke. It is past being a joke. This At this point, I don't know who the Seattle 7 is. I don't know who – Anybody who f touching this GoFundMe is, I feel bad for these people. And honestly, honestly, I think they need to seek mental help because they obviously have some serious, serious issues. They either have very, very bad issues or they have so much money that it doesn't even matter to them, in which case... I can think of a lot better things to do than to give it to people who have proven that nothing's ever going to come out of it. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I think one of the points that, that, that Ryan and I made, and Ryan in particular, was, you know, why, why is it that you have to come back to the pinball community to bail people out? Can't these people, for Dutch pinball, friends and family or go to the bank and get a loan get, just get your own money to bail yourself out stop coming back to the pinball community preying on their weaknesses which is wanting a great theme or a great pinball machine to bail you out it's a it's a good point and in the case of who is the seattle seven i don't know the i don't know the names 
individually. I don't know if they all live in the Seattle area even. I, I think the, the, I think the term Seattle seven comes from something, comes from a movie or, or some yeah. historical thing. I'm not, I'm not certain on that. Uh, that said, what I think maybe in the case of some of them, it, you know, we've, we've discussed this, this whole idea of sunk costs and that issue where maybe some of these people, it's not necessarily that they're so loaded that the money is meaningless to them, but they're $8,500 in. What do you do? Sit by and watch it fail or pay another $4,000 and try and get your machine, you know? And then when it fails, yeah. you're out even more. Well, I'm not saying just... it's smart. I'm just saying that I could see where that mental, that mental process, you can get stuck in that boat thinking, I have to intervene or else I'll get, I'll for sure get nothing. That Dutch can't save itself. So I have to save it. And that yeah. but I, you can't save it. They, they maybe they think that they can. Yeah, and and that that was sort of the the parallel that I had with a, a couple of Kickstarters that I spoke about that that failed, and you know, I, I think collectively the community says, well, you know, how many backers were there? If we gave you know another five hundred dollars each, then that would resurrect the the program, and you know, five hundred dollars isn't that much more to pay, and you know, that might be an extra one or two million dollars. Well, if you've given them $20 million and that hasn't worked, why would you give them another $2 million? And what makes you think that that extra $2 million is going to be a different path and that's going to work? Well, and that thing happened with the Robotech Kickstarter that we talked about yeah. a bunch of episodes ago. Uh, they did the same thing. There were people who were like, well, if we give more money, if we do this or if we do that, and it, and, and they did that buyout and people were all over it. They were all over it. They sold out the remaining stock of a game that nobody plays that's completely useless. But And that was even with people having to pay more to get extra stuff because it was beyond what they owed. or And to have people had to call and pay for their own shipping to get stuff that they'd already paid the shipping for. I, and I don't understand the thought process on any of it. I mean, I can't. I, I remember when, speaking of, we talked about WoW earlier. When I quit WoW, that was part of it. It's like, man, I've spent years playing this game and paying money to play this game, and I've built all this up. Can I just walk away from it? And the answer was, yeah, I could. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> but, and and so I think when you watch, when you read the threads on the forums about Dutch Pinball, you see that there it runs the gamut. So mm-hmm. you've got some people that have accepted and are at the point where they understand that they're essentially cutting their losses. You've got another block of people that are angry and are at the point where they want litigation to try and get something back. And then you've got the part that still thinks somehow Dutch Pinball can execute and pull it off. Uh, regarding these particular announcements that were in their newsletter, I want to weigh in on a couple of them real quick. First is GoFundMe. I, as, as Tony knows, I, I've never supported a Kickstarter. I despise GoFundMe though. I think it's, Far more nefarious. For me, mm-hmm. GoFundMe exists for one per- purpose, and that is to help people out who aren't charities if they've had a disaster strike them. So like someone's house burns down and you want to do like a fundraiser for a family or something, GoFundMe is great. This, especially on, on, for Dutch to use, and I get that they're not the ones leading the way, it's their customers leading the way, but it's a charity drive for a for-profit business. Yep. That was not using Kickstarter as its concept of funding their production. They did the pre-order model. It failed. Accept your failure. And then the other thing is this prototype. It should not have been auctioned. What is this? Some sort of 
third rate flipper who buys a new inbox game and saves it and then sells it for a profit. Why isn't that being sold off? I mean, are they using that money to give it to split amongst their customers or what? No, you why know are they they're not giving that? anything back. Why didn't to a they customer? give it to a customer? I, it's a, I get why they didn't do it. I'm just saying this is the behavior of an entity that is not expected to last. No. So anyway, so that is what it is. Okay, I'm glad we solved that problem. I think at this I, point I we place. could sit <laughs> we could sit down at this point and put together a a twelve stages of I got screwed by a pinball boutique and all you ever see because it's everybody, like you said. The people who are angry, the people who are like, well, why would you do this? This is the fourth time you've had this happen to you. How do you keep doing this? I wonder if any of them have actually been in on all the other, been in on I don't highway, know. been I, in I, on, on I, Skip B, Zidware. I'm sure it could. I mean, but at this point, and this isn't something I've seen in any other community I've been part of. Most of the time, if a company gets, go, has an issue, people get real gun shy of stuff. But for some reason in pinball, in pinball, it's more like, 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 like a domestic abuse victim who just, oh no, don't arrest him. No, he loves me. It's okay. Well, he broke your arm. Well, that's okay. I deserved it. That's what this feels like with pinball anymore. The way people keep going back to these people and every time they fail, it's like, no, 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 here's more money. You'll be okay. I, I love you. I love you. <laughs> It's funny to say that because, you know, even the the earlier stages of Dutch pinball sort of not going well, I I just still remember people would say, you know, here's what they've done, here's this bad news, here's what's going. But you know what? The guys from Dutch pinball, they're really nice guys. They're really passionate. They're pinball people just like you and me. No, they're pinball people that thought they could get a really complex product off the ground and it failed. And now they're fleecing you for more money. I would rather have a business guy who doesn't know anything about pinball, but is really good at business or really good at, at, at running a business than the, just period. I have more yeah, faith. But that's point. Gary Stern. I mean, that's it. I mean, you ask him what's his favorite pinball machine is whatever's currently on the line. Yeah. Yeah. His passions for manufacturing. So yeah, it, it works. It does work. But yeah, yeah, I think some people, they keep coming back to the well here because they're so desperate to see more companies succeed. Either they're unhappy with the, well, with Stern or they're, they just want to see more diversity. And I think we all would like to see more competition in the hobby, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean you, you need to keep taking it on the jaw over and right. over and over. When a boutique tries and fails, it, you know, at some point you need to cut your loss and just accept that. Okay. Well, yeah. that one didn't work. Let's see someone else come out and maybe they can execute better. Well, so th- this is the thing that I think. I think if you, if you aren't going to be a boutique manufacturer, then behave like and have a model that is a boutique model. And, and I always come back to Spooky. I think Spooky had, the right idea because they weren't shooting for the sky. Their first machine, they said, we are going to build 150 because we know how to build 150. We've got enough capital to be able to ship 150 machines. It's going to be a relatively simple machine. I think America's most haunted. It certainly wasn't the most complicated machine. If you look underneath it, it is actually really quite simple. Um, And they were able to achieve that. So you've either got a boutique that's just behaving like a boutique or you're going to go all in and you've got to have a massive amount of, of capital to, to be able to put all the, the R&D into it and then be able to become a production manufacturing company to then to be able to deliver. 
and do it over a realistic period of time. You know, obviously, I'm using Highway as the example here, where they said we are going to be a major manufacturer. We are going to release, you know, two three games a year, and our first title is going to come out within the, the next six to twelve months. Unrealistic. You just got it wrong. Hmm, mm-hmm. That sounds real familiar. Yeah. Well, that sounds real. That sounds like somebody else we're going to be talking about here in a little bit. Well, Except for they haven't failed yet. Well, they, well, we'll have to see. But before we get to that part, let's quickly touch on, unfortunately for Martin's sake, we're going to talk a little bit on U.S. centric here, but uh, we won't spend, we won't spend too much time on it. Uh, U.S. Supreme Court, highest court in the United States, uh, court case, South Dakota versus Wayfair, uh, 5-4 decision reversed the 1992 <coughs> Uh, Quill decision, as it was called. Uh, Wayfair's decision means now that states in the U.S. can start requiring online retailers to collect sales taxes directly, even if they don't have a physical presence in the state. That's the big change from Quill. Uh, the reason why we're talking about a tax issue here is because there is a pinball impact because a lot of people who have been ordering new in-box pinball machines deliberately do so from out-of-state distributors so that they can try and avoid sales tax. Uh, a couple things to note before we discuss this, because there's only one real aspect I think is worth discussing. Uh, first, I just want to make clear to, <laughs> clear to people, avoiding sales tax was never legal in the U.S. You still owed that sales tax even if you bought from a distributor. It was just that you were supposed to report it, not the distributor. So in the case of our state, which is Kansas, uh, there's a spot on our income tax form where you're supposed to declare whatever things you bought through catalogs or internet or whatnot that you didn't pay tax on. Now, how many people use that box? I have no idea. I've, I've always wondered. It, 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 to me, it's kind of like the, uh, 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 the, 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 the WinRAR people. You always wonder how many people actually pay WinRAR? Mm. Oh, how many people actually fill in the, oh yeah, mm. I spent $30,000 on stuff I bought from out of state. But I need, and I do need to disclose before we, we move on is that, uh, I am employed by an organization that backed retail collection of tax for years on online sales. So, yeah, no, I think it's a so, good thing. I I have oh, no well, problems yeah, with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, no. The the reasoning for the by by the court, if you read the decision, which it was an interesting decision because it did not split ideologically. There were conservatives and liberals on both sides of that decision, uh, and it just sort of comes down to fairness for the mom and pop stores. It, competitive advantage was to online, right? And that was a problem because it's it's crushing all the brick and mortar businesses, right? So all that said, let's get back to pinball. What well, I want to be- talk just about before we do. Oh, sorry, sure. sorry. Just, just before we do, because it's actually related. So something that's actually happened now in Australia, very similar. So as of the 1st of July, I believe it is, um, up until that date, anything that was shipped into Australia that was, I think it was below $1,000, um, didn't attract what we call GST or goods and services tax, which is an additional 10%. Well, that's now changed. And so everything that now comes into Australia now needs to attract a further 10% um, GST. And similar to what you're saying, I believe it's meant to be up to the person that imports to to declare it or to pay it, but they will um, sort of police that as it comes into the country. And, and that sort of causes a, a bit of a problem for us. I mean, obviously, I know why they're doing it, um, because it makes um, import products cheaper than buying them local. But, you know, for things like pinball, where really it's going to affect the um, the aftermarket. So 
you know, any, any sort of parts or, um, you know, plastics or mods or anything like that are now going to attract a further 10%. So I, I can sort of fall into that sort of same sort of character, um, category where that sort of whole online thing has been a problem for many years. There's, there's sort of revenue that's sort of been leaking everywhere, but that's going to affect the end user. Mm-hmm. Now, is GST, is that like a VAT? That's what I was thinking. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Yep. But it's, it's, t- it's 10%. Um, it's based on the particular product, not necessarily the state in which you're loca- located. So it's oh, Australia. I see. Okay. Uh, and in our state in Kansas, our, our sales tax, when combined with all local sales taxes, is about 10% at this yeah. stage. It's, usually, yeah. it's a little over, actually. Uh, so the discussion part of this is what everyone's wondering is, will this affect new inbox pinball sales? No. You don't think so? I don't think so. I think it'll, it'll affect the distributors because some distributors might have uh, less purchases than they used to. If somebody was like, somebody specifically avoided a distributor, not because they had an issue with the distributor, but because the distributor was local enough that they wanted to dodge the tax. There's no reason oh, to okay. stop them from going to a local distributor. So you're you're thinking maybe the, while the total sales would stay the same, we might see some probably mostly distributors in large states will start to see more business, and some that right. in the less populated states will lose business. I think I think I think okay. I, I, I that's what I okay. think is the biggest I could, change. I could see that. I could see that, but it does I mean even on a Stern Pro, especially if someone wasn't declaring whatever they need mm-hmm. to declare, it is going to add like five hundred dollars to the bill. Yes, yeah. but we've already seen people will just shovel out money for free to That's people. That's true. They don't all own the pe- peasant version like me. <laughs> That's a good point. What, what are your thoughts, Martin? Do you think it's going to have a, a notable impact on total annual sales of machines? Well, certainly not for us because we, we pay some tax on them anyway. Um uh, yeah, I, I, I personally think it will. I think, you know, you, you, you know, in America have the, the street price. Um, we don't because we've only really got one distributor. So it, it's that street price where it, it really probably does hit the, the distributor. They probably have to add that money to it. I, I think time will tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, I agree with you, Tony, on, on it. I don't think it's really going to have a big impact. It's like closing fees on a house. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. matter that it's there. It's basically transparent. When you go and buy a car and they collect the sales tax at the car sale of, at a dealer, by then you've already gone in to get your $14,000 vehicle and it's, you're, you're almost too late at that point and they're like, what? Their sales tax? Oh my. No, no one's. Yeah. That. No one does. So, that. so now, no, I don't think it's going to be a big. Now, thing. now, now I did do that once with that because, uh, back in the day when I played Eve online, uh, the group I played with included several people in Europe and a bunch of us that were here in the Kansas city area. We got together and we, we bought some stuff and, and, you know, some barbecue sauce and this and that and sent it to one of our buddies that we really liked who lived in Britain. And then we felt bad because we sent so much stuff that he had to pay 50, the equivalent of 50 bucks. Basically he had to pay 50 pounds, whatever, mm. uh, to get it out. Because of the VAT, so you ruined him financially to give him some barbecue. <laughs> I didn't. I, I didn't ruin him. We wow. didn't. Ruin, we sent him a lot more just Bravo. barbecue sauce. But it was. We felt kind of bad. He's like, he's like, oh, I have to pay the tax on this guy. So it's like, what are you talking about? Well, I have to pay the. I have to pay the import duties, the the, the VAT, and this and that. I'm like, what is? I've never heard of VAT before. What are you talking about? So. <laughs> 
Because, yeah, we sent him, like, a good-sized box. And it was just like, ooh, sorry, dude. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, let's hop over to our third pinball topic in the news category, and that is Deep Root Pinball. The an ex- expression that is very popular, I know, in Australia. <laughs> For sure. So uh, <laughs> a lot more information has been revealed uh, via This Week in Pinball, including a new uh, interview with Robert Mueller, the principal behind Deep Root Pinball. I have a link in the show notes for anyone who wants to read it. We're not going to go through all of it. We're just going to touch on the pieces that I think are the most interesting. So the first thing that I wanted to, uh, to tackle was the announcement that Steve Bowden, who was a prior guest on this show earlier this year, has joined Deep Root Pinball and will be working as a rule set designer. Uh, Martin, do you have any thoughts on that? I think it's a great move. It's a great move. I mean, when we interviewed Steve and we asked him, we said, you know, would you ever want to get into the, um, you know, the pinball industry? And he said, yeah, absolutely. Um, he is, he's a very clever person. Um, he absolutely can go deep into the rule sets and understands the nuances of rule sets and, and what makes um, a game enhanced through its rules. So I, I think this is absolutely. And, you know, when, when you think about Deep Root and all the people that they've hired, and they they really have hired, you know, like the AAA people of, of each of the, the genres from manufacture to design and now rules, I think it's a great move and, and good for Steve. Tony, any any thoughts? Oh, I think it's a great. I, I think a lot of, uh, I think having high-level players do rule set design, period, is really good. Um, but Steve's such a great guy. Yeah. He, he's, he's, just, okay. he's just a great guy. So I'm going back to Dutch, this is the whole same thing. He's a great guy. I'm glad to see he's moving into something that, will hopefully turn out really well for him. I think Deep Root, in general, as a conversation like we had before, has really, they have pulled out all of the stops. They're going whole hog on this, hopefully for them successful buy-in. This is either going to be the most spectacular crash and burn pinball has ever seen, or they might actually succeed. I know where my personal thoughts are, and okay. it involves me getting sticks and marshmallows in a lawn chair. <laughs> wow, yeah, you're, I think Tony and I sort of diverge on this. I think he's much he's much more cynical on its success than than I am at this point, given the moves they've made. But they are interesting moves, no matter what. And you mentioned that Steve is a nice guy, and Steve does listen to all the podcasts, so I'm sure that he'll send you your five dollars in the mail. Is he too nice? You get $5? That's the question no one's asked. You get $5? No, no one I only get 75 cents. We don't make money at this. (laughs) (laughs) You're lucky because that shows they care about you more because they have to pay more postage to mail those coins. (laughs) Uh, So this is what I was alluding to before when I said a boutique manufacturer needs to behave like a boutique manufacturer. And if you're going to go all in, you've got to have the capital behind you. Now, from I, I don't know Robert Mueller personally, but from all reports, this guy's got the the backing to be able to do this. So whether they've got the know-how, we don't know. No one's seen a product. No one's seen the quality of the product. But to be able to sink money in to be able to get this off and running at, at such a large scale, I'd say he's probably got the money to do it. Yeah, and, and that's where I'm, I'm coming from as well, that everything it's, everything they're indicating is that they have – they have planned for the a certain amount of financial 
upstart money and nothing that they've done so far suggests to me that it isn't sufficient. Whereas everyone else has right. done things that are, that are very questionable coupled with that they have brought in industry veterans or pinball veterans of, I mean, obviously Steve is new to working in pinball, but he knows pinball very well. This is following completely in the tradition of, we just saw Spooky pick up, uh, Bo and Karen's, mm-hmm. uh, again, top level player. He's doing rules for them. Jersey Jack's got Kiefer. He's a great player. And Stern's got Lyman Sheets. He's a great player. So this is, and Keith Elwin. You know, and Keith Elwin, that's our, that's right. He did, cause he not only pinball playfield design, he's doing his own rules. Uh, John Norris for Deep Root, actually, he did rules back in the premiere days. So they've got people, all their moves that they're making seem to indicate that they are, I almost want to call it a Capcom approach where they're, where they're understanding we're new. So we're going to bring in experts. We're not going to pull an Atari where we don't know anything about pinball and we just think we got enough money. We'll just figure it out. Yeah. Uh, yeah, didn't work. Didn't work yeah, out for I'm not, them. I'm, and I'm not going to say you guys are wrong at all. I just, uh, I think of any of the startup groups, any of that stuff we've seen in the last several years, they're the ones who impress me as the most likely to make it. But what? And they've got warning signs too. So yes, I, I mean, I'm not saying I, I don't. I'm, I, I'm not saying they're perfect. Well, no, it's, but I mean, the, the crash and burn aspect, I know the one that a lot of people will point to is this, that they plan to unveil at least three games simultaneously at yes. TPF next year. Seems to be a pretty aggressive timeline and three games at once is not something any new startup has done to my knowledge ever. Well, if you think about the, the, the parallel I'll give to Deep Root, probably, I don't know whether it's on the same scale, but American Pinball, for example. So, you know, they managed to get Houdini um, designed, built, and shipped within a very, very short period of time. And I think that the, the difference that American Pinball and Deep Root have is that their pinball division is exactly that. It's just one of many divisions. So they've got three or four other companies that are making a hell of a lot more money. So they can afford to have this little offshoot thing that makes them happy because they become famous pinball people. Very valid point. Yeah, I think now an American, I'll, I'll fess up. I expected American to be gone by now uh, when they first started. And they're not. And Houdini wasn't a bad game. I actually enjoyed Houdini. Yes, yeah, I'm. So, so I consider them a, a going, I'm, I'm not going to say a, a, a success, but they are at a going item. We'll see what game two has. Now I'm wondering if, uh, Deep Roots thoughts and how they're designing and how they're punching everything out is to do the, as they say, have at least three games at launch and then enter and they're not going to keep up that type of schedule. It's going to be, Hey, we've got three games at launch when we go public to have people purchase the games. And then they enter into the rotation, like, like, uh, Stern uses where they put out, you know, a couple, three, four games a year is what they're aiming for and having the money to support it with, as you said, everything else they've got. I think they've got a really good chance. I just don't know if it's going to happen. Yeah. We've all yeah. been burnt. Yeah. Yeah. We're everyone, everyone, everyone who's paid attention should be gun shy of any new manufacturer. Yeah. So, yeah, correct. And they, but, uh, but they're, it's, it's helping that they have not asked for pre order. Right. And that, that is a huge plus for me. Cause if anybody asks for pre orders and they've never kicked out 
a single machine, I just, no, they're an instant write-off for me at this point. And that's a very good point to bring up because that takes us into a next part of this information from This Week in Pinball about Deep Root. And that is that they are going to offer pre-order victim help. Yeah. So, so we've already discussed in the past about the terms that they've offered to the Zidware customers for those that had tried to purchase games that John Papaduke was designing for his startup company that didn't successfully produce anything. But now they're, they have, uh, Robert called out in an interview with This Week in Pinball that the, he's had conversations with Pinball Brothers and with Dutch Pinball and that they have no intention of delivering on their promises, uh, without giving up the ability for themselves to profit. So Deep Root Pinball is going to offer some form of relief to those that have pre-ordered, uh, or tried to purchase from Highway slash Pinball Brothers, because we're kind of one in the same in that, and Dutch Pinball customers. It's going to run between October, start of October, and the end of this year. The nature of the relief is not yet determined. Robert did declare it will not be as extensive as what was offered to the Zidware customers. That the philosophy is, you did take a risk pre-ordering. We're not going to absolve all that risk for you. We don't really have anything to do with these other companies, but it's bad for the hobby that people got burdened to this badly. So it might be credit on games. It might be some sort of arrangement on, on travel. He mentioned, uh, it might not be to purchase a product at all. It's not going to be free games though, but that they want to try and do something. So what'd you think of that, Martin? Because the, I mean, either about this information about what he indicated coming out of Pinball Brothers and Dutch when he spoke with them or about the, the relief itself. Okay. So there's a couple of things here. Um, I think, I think that's obviously, it, it's good for him to do. It's a, it's a bit of a token gesture, I think, but, but it, I'm probably, probably moving it onto a different angle as well, but it comes back to their price point where they're saying that they want to release machines for, 3,500 US, I think it is, you know, obviously all the way up to, to 50,000. But f for that price point, I, I think what he's really saying is that there's still some fat in these machines for them to be able to offer relief. And, and that's what I think it'll be. It'll just be you get a further discount if you buy a deep root machine, really. So it comes back to their price point and how cheaply he believes that they can manufacture these machines. Yeah, and I would I would guess that ultimately the nature of the relief would be something like that, like a, a coupon. So without lack of a better term, a voucher of some sort. But yeah, I'm not sure. I will go ahead and, and note the the comments that he made in the interview about the indication on not to deliver on promises. Yeah, uh, yeah. That uh, I, I don't, think that's it's again it's another voice that's saying don't trust these people. Right. And I had, I mean, I did not mention it on the show because it was told to me in, a, in an off of the record format. But now that it's come out as a source on the interview, I will note, I, I was told about that, about discussions with, with, uh, pinball brothers and what their intentions were. And this is in line with what I was informed. Yeah. yeah. This was a couple months ago. So, so given that it's like, okay, well, it, it is what it is. But yeah, I think, I think it's a token gesture. I agree with you, Martin, but, but a good one from a community perspective. There's no downside to the community. No, it's solid PR. It. Yeah. It is solid yeah, PR. Absolutely. And that's exactly what it yep. is. For a company that's somewhat struggled with PR. Right. Yeah. yeah. Now, and so, so going, so thinking about the people that are at Deep Root. So they've now got really good designers. They've now got, 
um, really – they've got the rules. They've got manufacturing. Who who does their art? Right. I don't the, – the things that I think are the – where we don't know about veterans is we don't have a veteran artist known and we don't have a veteran programmer known. And they've been pretty – public about that they're using a different programming approach yeah a different group yeah. so we're not i don't expect some pinball programmer to be poached away i think they feel any programmer as long as the rules are being created by someone like steve bowden can execute on the programming and my knowledge of programmers would lead me to agree with that philosophy but uh i i have not heard a single thing about art actually and i haven't really thought much about it do you have any ideas martin well, I do know somebody that's possibly free at the moment. Really? So we, yeah, funny that. We did see, I think, uh, Christopher Franchi announced on Facebook that his pinball career is over. So Over? Maybe, maybe I don't know whether he's hung up his pinball pen for a while or whether, I, d- I don't know, whether it's he's left Kapow or whether he's left Stern or whether his contract is up. But there you go. Franchi, go to Deep Root. They need an artist. Well, yeah. this is this is interesting. So, do you think that surely this must relate to why he wasn't able to launch that podcast he was planning with all the interviews of the legends? I mean, that's my first thing I think of because I I was hearing him promote that on a variety of podcasts, and then next thing I see because I followed the page was on permanent hiatus. Yeah, yeah. I think I don't know. I think he wanted to just do a different format. I think the the live format was going to be probably a bit of a struggle to to get people online mm. on these interviews live and then archived as a podcast. Um, and then so now he's come out and said that the what is it the super duper mega awesome. Yeah, time. it's about eight words too long. <laughs> <laughs> when he updates his rules for pinball podcasters, have him add one. Don't make your name too long. <laughs> so I just, I don't know. I, I think he just wanted a a different format. And maybe he did want it to be probably more independent to Stern. Um, but yeah, it'd be interesting to see whether we do all of a sudden, you know, this week in pinball, we look next week and new announcement Christopher Frangie joins Deep Root. I would not be surprised if that happens. I have. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. No background information to suggest that that's the case. I'm now pure speculating. Well, he'd be a great pick. Yeah. I, I love his yeah. almost photorealistic style that he has. I'd, I'd yes. probably name him as my favorite artist in pinball with uh, Jeremy Packer just behind him. Uh, but, but I would yeah. agree with you. I would agree with you because I think his art style for me is, is preferable because i think that um even though i do love zombie yeti's art and i do you know um dirty donny um that sort of cartoony very intricate line line drawing art it's a certain style but i do prefer the the flatness but it's got more of a, a 3d depth behind it yeah yeah you articulated a lot better than than me i've I'm sure. somewhat clumsy with with my art terms. You know, <laughs> Fra- Franchi, yeah, Franchi's style just visually appeals to me the most, uh, at least for pinball. So. Yeah, same. All right. Agreed. See, see, Tony, do you agree? You should agree. Um, you don't. I can tell. <laughs> I can see his face, I just, and it's it's. I not. just flip. You got just backwards. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I just the other way. Oh, you put, you put zombie yeti. Yeah. Not by a lot, just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I, no, I really, I really enjoy his art style. That's oh, sure. that's why. Sure. It's not like a major. I have the beholder and all that. Yeah. So I think the, the summary. The summary is: we are getting really good pinball art at the moment, except for Star Wars. But 
it, yeah. everything around it before yeah. and after. Yeah. Pinball art is really great at the moment. Yeah, I'd say it's the best it's ever been, actually. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. Terms, just in terms of the skill level uh, that the artists wield that they're bringing in at this point, uh, I, I don't even I don't even think it's up for debate. Yeah, uh, no, I I agree totally, wholeheartedly. Yep. Well, let's see if you agree with this, and that is some elements from the interview with Robert that This Week in Pinball did that we haven't touched on yet. We just have a few of them. Uh, beyond those above issues that we talked about, here are a few other parts that I found interesting in the interview. And again, the interview is linked in the show notes. So if you want to learn all about it, go ahead and read about it. But uh, Deep Root has been looking at four other games from other manufacturers and comparing what their standard is to uh-huh. that. Essentially, they picked games to, as as Robert some, seemed to describe it, that they wanted to look at and say, don't do it like this. And the four games were Ghostbusters, which was what they looked at to understand what a modern stern build is like. America's Most Haunted, to understand what a boutique build is like. No Good Gophers, for what a classic Bally Williams game is like. And The Hobbit, which was described as for an overkill game. Hmm. So now, Martin, I know you used to own a Hobbit. I don't know if you've owned the others. I've not owned any of these. Um, uh, but I've, I've played them all. No, yeah, I, I, I've played them all as well. Um, Ghostbusters probably, outside of The Hobbit because I owned it, but Ghostbusters probably the most because there's the most of them out, um, oh, yeah. particularly in, in tournaments, which mm-hmm. is one of, one of the most terrible games for, for a tournament because it's so unfair. Um, but, I, I, you know, I, I kind of looked at that and I understood what he was trying to do. I think what I think we're saying, you know, um, really Ghostbusters, most of them really it's all about the the build process. I don't think he was necessarily looking at them from a, a playfield design or art or layout. I think what he was saying is when you are wanting to have a bill of materials for a particular game, the level at which they should go, coming back to what we're saying for a $3,500 machine. And I think what he's referring to with the Hobbit for Overkill is if you if you do lift up the playfield of a Hobbit and see what's underneath, it is way too much for what you actually see on top of the machine. There, there's way too much mechanics there, and I think what he's saying is that 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 kind of stuff is, and and, and that's probably there. That overkill is for what's underneath the playfield. What's on top doesn't really match all the effort that's gone to underneath. Over-engineered, essentially. But yeah, potentially. But and also, don't forget that the Hobbit did go through a major revision. It, it did have two target banks at first, so there, there was obviously that two times that mech and everything to support it. They then had to cut that back and open it up and, and have a little pop bumper area. Um, but yes, for, for what it actually does, um, yeah, I think that's what he's saying is overkill. Okay. Ghostbusters probably just from a a very solid mid-range Ghostbusters, you know, this is Stern Machine, this is how it's sort of built and the bill of materials is there. That probably is right there as far as the the, the mid-pack of Stern Machines. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right, Martin. I think that's I think that's what they're really looking at. And I, with your explanation of what's underneath the, the Hobbit, because I've not looked underneath the Hobbit before, uh, that, that would fit with that. Uh, Ghostbusters... 
representing just sort of what the, at least at the time, what stern build quality was much like. And, you know, there are a few things that one could target in on that about, there's a lot of complaints. Uh, some people feel Stern's dimple more than others. Oh. Ghostbusters, of course, had the whole Slimer uh, mech. Yeah, the Slimer mech issue was an interesting one. A lot of people had to adjust that out of the box mechanically and put in washers and spacers. Uh, the, that was also where the quote unquote ghosting, I hate that expression because that's what <laughs> LEDs do, but the clear coat <laughs> separation issue was pretty rampant as well yep. with Ghostbusters, uh, more so than any other game, in fact. Uh, so there's that. Um, America's Most Haunted. I've, Heard a lot of people say it's fun, but it's cheap. It feels cheap. Yeah. It looks cheap. And, and it did. And Spooky, yeah. I think, would acknowledge that they've always improved their build quality as they've gone along with game after game after game. So you'd expect that. So it's a good way to look at, okay, well, what's quality out from the most successful boutique manufacturer? What does that look like? And then no good gophers because it's crap. <laughs> what a terrible game. What a terrible game. And I really dislike it. It's well because it's because you it's objectively awful. Mm, I mean, yeah. I would be it's a, but from a mechanics perspective, that whole upper drop playfield thing had to be a nightmare for the hole in one and all that. So <laughs> just just uh, just trying to do something visually fancy and what all had to go into it that Bally Williams was often a, fi- a fan of once the uh, mid nineties arrived and pinball was starting to decline yeah. again would be my guess. Yeah, but and I also think that it's 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 another example. Regardless, I mean, we we really dislike that game, and and I'm not a big fan of Pat Lawler's games, which has been well mentioned. But I think as far as that game goes, it is fairly complex. So if you really wanted to know oh, yeah. what a an ambitious Bally Williams was, that's a good machine to study. I agree. I agree. Just don't let any of their developers look at it for inspiration on the layout. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For sure. But, but, and I, and I would agree with you, Martin. I, uh, I wouldn't actually look at any Pat Lawler game other than maybe dialed in. I wouldn't look at Pat Lawler games for layout ideas, but, um, okay. Another piece from the interview, uh, a Utah, Utah creative studio has been created to focus on programming for the screen. So the, both the visual effects of what will be displayed on the LCD screens and, uh, gaming aspects. So video modes. I just think it's weird when they they just bought a building and they did all this stuff so they could consolidate all their locations into one place and there's suddenly a place in Utah. Yeah, Utah. It's not close. So that was I, – I found I, – it was weird. I could see them maybe – I could see having the, the art production – not art, but the, the visuals, the programming for that. I could see it not needing to be with everything else. Mm-hmm. I don't know why Utah was chosen. If it's, I guess, for a collaboration with another entity. That would be my it. guess. But, but uh, interesting. I just, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know anything again, out because there. Because of Deep Root having other companies, they probably do have another. And maybe, maybe he actually does own a larger design studio company, and this team can fit within them. And as you say, um, they can collaborate with other artists. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, and and that would also make sense. They've said you know the the studio will soon house tens of artists. Now, if you've got let's say you have got ten ten artists there, and you're doing three machines a year, well, that's probably a bit of overkill as well. So maybe when production goes down in between, they can actually work on other companies within that group to work as well. That ma- that makes sense. I I have worked for um, an organization. I was one of six companies that was had had a the one common owner 
and they had that sort of centralized shared services, which was um, studio, you know, finance, recruitment, all managed all those different companies. So that makes sense. You get efficiency that way. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, let's move out of pinball news and let's get into some more discussion-oriented topics. And Martin, we mentioned in the intro and you elaborated a bit regarding your your streaming of pinball online. Uh, sure. And you do regularly stream. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the sort of like what setup you 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 went with and the schedule you sort of try and follow and what your I mean you touched on it in the intro, but sort of what what the goal is, what what you're trying to accomplish when you stream. Okay, so what I'm trying to accomplish when I stream now is very simple. I have a maximum of four machines in my house, and um, I, I do work relatively long hours, and I'm in a location where noise can sometimes be a problem. And so as a result, I just wasn't playing my machines, and, and sometimes I'd walk past them, and, and I'd actually see a film of dust over the top, and I realized that was a bit of a problem. So I um, I had been you know, streaming probably once a month for the Melbourne Silver Bowl League competitions. So when that finished, I thought two things. I'll start the podcast and I'll also start regular streaming. So um, in Australia, that's Wednesday nights and Sunday nights. And it's it's usually a single machine. Um, and my my setup is is pretty basic. And it's got all the, the common elements that, that people have in that. I've got a camcorder for my... Um, Playfield, mainly because the camcorders are very good at handling um, sudden bright lights and and also manages low light volumes as well. Um, so you don't you don't get sudden you know glare that happens when flashes go off, particularly in in some stern machines. Um, that feeds into a capture card. I, I use an Energini um, capture card, which is very good quality. Um, Two um, webcams, sometimes three webcams. They're usually just Logitech's um, 920s or 922s, um, all going into a laptop. So I want to be able to have it portable. So um, I do have – there's a, a network of people that I know that have got machines. So I can go to other locations. And during the week, we actually did um, stream the one of our monthly tournaments. And it was the first, but second time that we had streamed this particular tournament. And it was done a lot better than the first time, and that's what I like to do is learn. And the good thing about streaming this particular one from the beginning to the end, I actually won this tournament, which was good. Mm-hmm. I'd had a bit of a a bit of a dry spell, so I was I was glad that that happened. And it went so late that it was then morning in the US, so you know it was quite unnerving having someone like Colin Calpine watching me play. But um, so the, the the streaming really is for me to now play my machines at home. Um, and as has been mentioned before, subtly, I, I do like to have a bit of a, a drink as I'm playing, and sometimes that does go a little bit overboard, not too often. Um, I thought that was a rule for streaming. No, you're I just think used it, to I, watching Jack Danger is why you think that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so look, I, I, I've, I've often said that I'm a big fan of gin. I, I didn't drink my entire life. I, I, I only started drinking about three years ago and I'm of a certain vintage. Um, and so sometimes it can go down really, really well. And before I know it, I've had too much and that's what happens. But um, the, the, the aim for the stream really is for me to play my machines, interact with people. If I get people watching, that's great. If I get people subscribing, 
that's great. It really is just for me to um, enjoy the hobby in a non-competitive um, aspect because, you know, we, we, we mentioned before that I, I do play tournaments and I've played a lot of tournaments. I don't necessarily love playing tournaments all the time. That makes sense. Yep. I, I Even when I – I mean, back in May, I think we had an event every weekend and by the end of it, I was like – I, I'm not going to the next non-regular monthly because yeah. it was just, I was tired of it. Tired of dry. Yeah. I wasn't even doing bad, but it was just like, eh, it's just, it's just a little too much, uh, in that environment for that sort of, sort of thing. So, so let's say that there's someone, we'll use someone like, will you say me? Uh, and I'm like, okay, you've convinced me, Martin. I need to play my machines more. Streaming would help me. How easy is it for someone to start streaming pinball in what I'll call a casual rig sort of setup? Well, first you need to find a good bar. Yeah. Well, or, or, <laughs> or a good liquor store. Or a good liquor store. Okay. Well, we are, we're surrounded <laughs> sure. by those. So that's not a problem. All <laughs> that's, right, so that, I, got, I got the gin. I got, um, I mean, like laptop power. Whenever I've tried to stream anything, it seems like the number of cores or threads or something is critical to that. So. Yeah, is that is. the is that the bottleneck? Is the the power of the computer? Yeah, it really is. Um, and and it really depends on whether you're going to go full webcams. So you would have three webcams: one for the uh, the the play field, one for the score, one for you as the player. Um, and then it, that really then comes down to USB, uh, like your bus speed as well. Sometimes you can get bottlenecks there. So you want either a, a you know a, a tower or a portable laptop that's got a lot of USB ports and, you know, obviously USB 3, which is pretty standard these days. Um, and empowered, if you're going to have a, um, a hub, um, it's probably better to have um, a powered one if you can. But really easy. It's actually really easy to set up um, a streaming rig these days. And, um, you know, when you then got to use, there's two main um, software programs that people use. Um, one's called XSplit. And the other one is called OBS. I think OBS, Open Broadcast Software, I think it is. Um, and I've used XSplit for the last two years, and, and mainly because the interface is really user-friendly. You, you click, you drag, you add, and it's all done. But recently, it, um, it started crashing on me, and, and I, was, I was streaming Batman 66 at a friend's place, I got there early and for some reason it just kept crashing and I tried all these different things. I was half an hour late. I was into the stream and I went, you know what, I've got to try something different. Drastically, I downloaded and an installed OBS and OBS has a very different interface. It's it's a probably a lot harder to, to get into. There's probably a steeper learning curve. But once I, I got it done, I actually found it a much better software to, to use now. So I'm now on OBS. Um, if if you if you know how to use, let's say, a Microsoft PowerPoint, you'll know how to use one of these programs. Okay, I've yeah. played around with OBS. I have as well, actually, and I I did. Uh, I've never streamed on on Twitch or anything live using it, but I have. I do have the. I actually have the equipment to do streaming. I just don't, and uh, I've used it to do recordings of games. Like yeah. if I'm working on a game for someone. 
like my brother-in-law. I, I think before I gave him his la- uh, the laser worm my dad got him for his birthday, uh, once it was all put together and working, I used that to record. And that way I could have the scores on one screen in the play field and, and just show it, basically throw together gameplay video was the idea. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. And OBS yeah. is a, it's a little, it's not, it's not bad. It's just, I can see why it's a little intimidating because it, it doesn't, yeah. doesn't hold your hand very well. Right. But, but there are a lot of guides online, which is nice. Yeah. Because that's where I, OBS was when I was trying to put together some video streaming. And the problem with the, the my bottleneck is the computer. The processor. My, I, yeah. my, I don't have the processor for it. Yeah. And not, it, not to play a game and stream on the same machine. Mm-hmm. I can do one or the other. I've proven that. I just need another machine. Right. And this laptop I'm recording the, the podcast with, I got. And I tried to look at things that were... It's probably... It's still... It probably should be higher end to actually do the video streaming. But the issue was the last one was struggling even with integrating multiple USB mics, right. which is normally you don't have to do that, but we're, we're doing it. So I yeah. got a new system so that it would handle that better. And I, it did handle the streaming a lot better, but I really had to pay attention to those threads on that processor and, and make sure I had enough RAM and all. Oh, oh gosh. Yeah. It's like that because really with, with pinball, uh, for me, um, the having it locked in at 60 frames per second is a much better experience for the viewer just particularly with the ball sometimes going so fast you want to see where it is quite smoothly um and it's recommended that you know you don't stream anything higher than 720p anything more than that's probably a bit of overkill for what people need to see and that's that's usually good for most cameras and particularly the um you know if you wanted to just get a logitech i think what is it the c922 that does 60 frames now, but only when you've got a maximum of 720p. So that works out well there. Um, but that, that night that I used OBS, you know, I think 15, 20 minutes later from install and downloading it for the first time and getting a fairly rudimentary multi-camera stream up and running, yeah, it was about 15, 20 minutes. That's pretty fast. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of trial and error. And, um, you know, I, I was actually adding screens and resizing things live on the stream because it just and and having to change audio sources because i just didn't know what i was doing but Mm. by the time the stream was done it it looked good and obs uses a lot less resources on your machine as well nice okay well let's go ahead and pivot to another pinball discussion topic as you noted actually during that streaming segment that you're really known for your involvement in the competitive pinball scene uh i would say that you're who I would describe as deeply involved, you're a high-level player. Uh, given all these different uh, comps, as you often call them, that you've been to, uh, what formats do you think people find the most enjoyable overall? Hmm. That's interesting. It's a, it's a balance between um, how much and how often you're playing a machine on a night. So... The, the the original format that we used to have was best game on two machines with then finals. And so if you had 40 people turn up and there were only two machines playing and it was best game, you'd play one game on each of those machines and the top eight would then go into semifinals and then finals. Um, it would You could be there for three hours and play two games. And that's not fun. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's not, it's not fun if you're there to play pinball and you're serious about pinball. But if you're there to meet pinball people, have, you know, and these were at pubs. So, 
if you're there to meet meet more people, have a bit of a chat, have a drink, have something to eat, that that's fine. Those three hours can go very quickly, but it 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 also can turn a lot of people off that are going for the first time who are standing around that don't know anybody and they play their game, play the second game, come last and never come back. Um, the, the complete opposite to that, and it's a, it's a, a, um, a format that we've spoken about and a lot of people have reached out to us to get more details about it. And this is the Flip Frenzy format, which originally came out of Japan, I believe. So one of our country directors, Luke Marburg, um, introduced that format to um, the Australian community and it's the most fun you can have playing pinball. Are, are you aware with the Flip Frenzy format? I played one last year, October. Yeah, there I did not. We were at a we were at a private party and they they around here they tend to call it pinball, 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 but it, sure. it is yep. the, right, it's that it's that format. So and Tony said he, afterwards, I was just like, I wanted to go around and just play games for once and not enter the tournament. And then apparently I missed the best format they ever did. It, it worked really so. well. Uh, once there was a little tiny bit of confusion at the very beginning, but once the confusion yes. got figured out and once everybody knew exactly what was going on, it was fast. It was fun. Quite enjoyable. Yeah. And so for those people that don't know, it, it effectively is a, a certain period of time and you play head to head as much pinball as you can over a certain period of time. And whoever has the highest win-loss, not necessarily ratio, but the most amount of wins um, is is the winner. And it becomes really quite strategic because you're trying to get through each game as quick as you can whilst winning. So you might be the first player on ball three and you're absolutely smashing the machine. And you've got to think to yourself, well, how far in front of this person do I need to be so they don't catch up? But I don't play this game for an hour because that that could be three other games that I could win in that time. Yeah, so it's got a nice strategic element to it, but keeps you playing, which even the lowest skilled player will enjoy because I'll actually be busy doing something. Well, absolutely, and and it's usually it's it's usually good value for money. You know, you pay your ten dollars or your five dollars, and you'll pay you'll play fourteen to fifteen games over that period of time, and it's it's quite frenetic. You don't know who you're going to be paired up with. It's it's a bit like speed dating, um, but it, it it's just really fun. Hmm. But it does yeah, it, the, the format does require a lot of management. You need specific software to be able to manage it, and usually you need two people to run it. One to manage the scores and where people are going, and then there's one person that manages the queue and also directs people to which machines they're going to. Right, and that was where we had our stumbling block, is we didn't have a specific director set up at, at first. Uh, but as I said, it was a lot of fun, and when you were talking about the the uh, strategic point, there was, I know, at least once I played a match where my opponent on ball one scored more points than my highest total ever on the machine, and I just drained. I just drained everything because I wanted off the machine as fast as possible. That's right. I didn't, I yep. didn't want him to play out for the next... 20 minutes doing blowing huge scores up. I just drained. It's like, I can, I know I can't catch up on that realistically unless I have the most amazing game of my career and it's not worth my time. So I would, I just drained out on one of those just and walked. But I mean, I beat players in that just from the way everybody was moving this and that. I had wins against people I've never beaten before. Um, and it worked out. It worked out once the flow got going. I enjoyed it a lot. It is one of my favorite competition types. Yeah. 
and and so my 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 now favorite competition format is the heads up format where you've got two machines the exact the same machines obviously not identical because they they play differently um and you set an objective and it's the first person to get to that objective so it, it's it's like pin golf on steroids so do you all have a have locations that are able i mean that we don't i don't have any place around here where anyone has two of the same games so. yeah that would be our big tr- struggle is finding, yeah. finding that because it sounds like I love that idea. I love the idea, not just because I think it sounds like it's fun to play, but it's one of the few formats of pinball that I think a layperson could watch and understand. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So, um, uh, you know, e-sport it. Yeah, you, you really could um, because it is a race to the clock and it's a simple objective and everybody that's watched it. Um, has probably found it the most enjoyable to watch. We're lucky, I guess, lucky and unlucky in some ways, in that at a time, Ryan and I, well, Ryan's got about, you know, 15, 16 machines, and I've only ever had a maximum of four machines. And I think three of the four machines were the machines that he had. So I took my Star Trek Limited Edition and my Wizard of Oz Emerald um, City Edition over to his place and we had heads up there on those two machines and again it was the first time i'd played it and what's really interesting about that format is that you are playing your machine watching your game but at the same time you're looking over at your opponent to see where they are because you can't take your time you have got to do it as quick as you can but the person next to you dictates the pace at which you're going as well so it really is like a, a car race where you are just looking at your opponent and you're pacing yourself depending on what they're doing. And it's, it's, it's intense. It's fun. Um, we had uh, the, the, probably the big, biggest moment that we had was one of the objectives was to start rescue multiball in uh, wizard of Oz. And it, it happened almost split second would have been either a second difference or less than a second difference between these two opponents getting rescue starting. And it just had massive cheers. Everybody was on the edge of their seat. It was just, it was a fantastic moment. And that's what this format does. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I I do. I really want to try it. I've been hearing only good things, Uh, but no one wants to bring a game over that I already have. (laughs) Uh, Maybe you take yours to them. No, no, come on, please. We got to have some (laughs) I'm the one with the big microphone. They can come here. Uh, so. So what, what is in your collection? <laughs> I've heard it's not really the size huh? of the microphone. <laughs> it's not. It's not. <laughs> oh my! So, so, so what I know. So Tony, you don't you don't have machines. That's right. I don't. I I still don't have any machines as of yet. One of these right. days. What What would change that? What is there a particular machine that you would think oh, I would have to have that in my collection if I could? When my debt was paid off. Yep, 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 that game. Yep. That's that 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 is literally the only thing that has held me back from a machine at this point is is every time I build up money it's always like ah there's this like like I specifically saved money up when we went to Texas last time and I took a good chunk of money and there were several machines that were in my price point that I had some interest in but every time I looked at it it was like I've got enough money to pay off to, to finally pay off that hospital bill. Sure. And that's what I ended up doing is I ended up taking all that money back home and paying off a hospital bill with it mm-hmm. instead of paying it over time. That's the only thing that's held me back from machines. It's, it's, I always have something that makes more 
financial sense to take care of. Sure. Otherwise, I've got uh, plenty of machines that at times it's like, I would have that in my house right now. And that's one of the, well, I would love for Tony to get machines. I also love that this also, this is a perspective. This is a situation that a lot of people who like pinball are in. Mm-hmm. And I think that gets, I think people lose sight of that, especially on a place like Pinside, which is very collector oriented. That yeah. there's a very sizable segment of this hobby that is not out there buying new inbox machines all the time. And they want to play too. So, but I do want you to get a machine. I I I want to get a machine, and I still I bought a new car, and when I drove home from picking oh, up my yes. new car, I, I came home, parked in the driveway, all happy with my new car, and I walked inside, and I sat down, and I fired up Facebook to see uh to post a thing about my new car, and there was literally a beautiful meteor for sale that had been listed uh. for sale for five <laughs> minutes. And it wasn't more than 15 miles from the house. And it was just, and I could have easily paid for it if I hadn't just paid for a car. And I was just like, if I hadn't mm-hmm. bought this car, I would have bought this meteor. It was just the situation. It just everything worked out just right, wrong, either way, really. Yeah. It was just, it was just how the cookie all, crumbled. All a matter of perspective. Yeah. Good, good game though. Yeah, no, I really yeah. wanted it. I really wanted it. I, I was like, it's oh, a good no. spinner game. Oh yeah. Oh, those classic Sterns—they sure love their spinners. They really do. So, uh, one other piece on the competitive side, I want—I wanted to get at was Martin. What your thoughts might be on the what? What do you think are the best ways to recruit new people into the competitive scene? So, either people who have no background in pinball whatsoever, or maybe they are collectors or casual players and just trying to. I, I don't know if you've worked at that. We have these discussions with the some of the regular tournament people here in the mm-hmm. Kansas City area. And, you know, that's always been the sort of struggle as we go and we'll go to a competition and our comps, they usually have somewhere on the order of 20 to 30 people at the regular monthlies. But, you know, 95% of the faces are the same. Right. But we want to grow. Yeah. But we still love okay, you so- guys. Yeah, we <laughs> all two of them that listen. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so so there's, there's there's two things to think about here. There's the before, and then there's the after. Before meaning how do you get people to come, and the after is how do you get people to enjoy. Um, and and look, I think I've, we found, and and really only recently as well, social media plays a massive part in promoting. Um. So and the the after is obviously word of mouth brings more people in, but to get people in first, well, we actually just started up a new Facebook group called I think it's Melbourne Competitions or Melbourne Tournament Group or something like that. Um, and ever since that's been added, we've seen new people start. Um, I particularly with Melbourne Silver Ball League, um, you know, towards the end, fifty percent of people each night were new. Wow. And that was because I was a, I was actually doing paid Facebook advertising. Oh, just okay. Oh. To my to my Facebook page, and I would do a lot of promotion of it. I would do, um, you know, I obviously I created a brand for Melbourne Silver Ball. I then, um, you know, as I said, did advertising. Um, also, the venue as well. They started advertising the tournaments as well. So that's really important if you've got a well-known um, venue and. The one in Melbourne is called Pinball Paradise. And so on their Facebook page, they were advertising the tournaments that I was doing. Um, 
And so, you know, it was, it was, it got a lot of reach and a lot of people turned up. So the most important thing is the after, which is have a format that's fun. So we had a three strike knockout format, which was great because everybody gets to play at least a minimum of three games and they're, they're pretty much back to back. But I also made sure that I had, as part of the Melbourne Silver Ball League, and the league really was a group of people. It wasn't just me. I formed it, but I had about three or four originally um, people that were part of Melbourne Silver Ball League, and that, that sort of branched out to about seven or eight people. So it meant that as soon as somebody walked in the door, there was somebody that would greet that person and introduce them to everybody, talk to them about the format, tell them about how much fun they're going to have, manage their expectations so they didn't feel that they were walking into this really weird, exclusive group that everybody knew each other. You know, when you you, you turn up to an AA meeting, mm. not that I have <laughs> yet. <Yeah>. But, <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? Like, waiting until the stack of, of things, gin bottles hit the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that, that kind of – I remember – the first, the first tournament that I ever went to, and a friend of mine said, well, you're into pinball, I'm into pinball, did you know that there's these pinball tournaments happening, you should go along, and I was kind of, I was, I was really scared, I was like, I, I, I don't know whether I can, I don't know these people, I, and what, what are pinball people like, I, I don't know what they're like, and so, you know, when, when I walked in, and the tournament director at the time, and this is a guy called um, Jimmy who now runs one of the most successful um, pinball locations in Australia up in Brisbane, um, just all, all I remember was this smile. This person that smiled, greeted me, and was as excited as for me being there as I was being there. And that was it. And as soon as that happened... Um, I felt comfortable and I met a lot of other people. So I wanted to emulate that same experience that when people walk in the door, they don't feel any intimidation within 10 to 15 seconds. That's, I think that's, that's the key. And then throughout the night, have a format where you are playing a bit of pinball, but also the group itself is interacting together. And as a result, that, you know, we've grown, um, pinball certainly in Melbourne that way. Yeah. 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 That, no, it makes a, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, most of our see in our case, uh, the regular stuff is all uh, what the I guess regular two person match play. It's uh, it's a two strike elimination sort of. So yeah, best of three. Yeah, best of three. Yeah, best of three format. Uh, uh double elimination. There, right. we, that's the term for double elimination format. Uh, my my first tournament though, and I was terrified to go to my first tournament because I re I read about it in the newspaper actually from an article a few years before, and then I saw oh it's still going, and I thought oh, I'll go ahead and try it. And I remember the reason I did it. I went in a February because in January I saw there there were only six people who had played in it, and I thought I I can handle a group that size. When I went, it was 20-some, and I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I, this is a terrible mess. My hands were shaking because I don't do good in those situations. But the tournament director was very nice. Uh, and after I went to and out quite, quite rapidly, thank you, Iron Man, uh, <laughs> afterwards, uh, he talked to me for a lot, and so did other people, but just sort of like, oh, well, what, what do you like about pinball? Do you have any games? What games are you familiar with? Are, are you new to competitive? And then it was like, okay. And so a couple months later, I went back, and then I started to 
get more regular in it. Later, I went to the other area tournament, which is at the, I guess, what you might consider the more hardcore location for the top competitive players in our area. And I think it was really good I started at the other place because while, uh, yeah. while I know everyone there now, I always feel when I go in, when I if I didn't, that it would be colder. Yeah, it, it's very, better, it's I, very I, shark's den type of. Yeah, and it's a sort of, it's, it's more loose, it's more loose in the sense that the tournament director might not yet be there. It's not there. The director doesn't own the games. It, it's all, it's just, it's just a different format. And, and I know others in our area who have told me that they are more, I guess, intimidated to go to that one. Yeah. Versus to the more, what I guess you might think of as more casual, though they're worth about the same amount of points no matter what. Uh, there's just, that's sort of the reps, but they all run the, the game approach the same. And that's often been my big concern or just in terms of my time is I'm waiting around an awful lot. I hate waiting. Yeah. Um, but it got better when I started to know people because then we would talk. But before then it was just like, okay, well, if you're losing really quick, it's great. But if it's in between, it's like uh, three hours to play three games is a long time. Yeah. So we had Bowen Karens on our show, and one of the questions that I asked him was, you know, what makes or what advice would you give to somebody starting or what makes a successful tournament? Um, and he said something that I absolutely subscribe to, and that is it should be as fun and enjoyable as somebody that's playing for the first time as to somebody that's the top player that always wins. Yeah. 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 I remember, uh, we, we had a talk with him about setting up a league because we're, I, I think they finally started up another league here in Kansas City, but we, we normally, we often don't have leagues, often just have tournaments. And, uh, so we had a discussion with Bowen about leagues and how the New England Pinball League worked. And that, yeah, that was a big core part is, is he said, someone like me is always going to have fun. I'm, I'm a top, I'm a top level player. I'm going to have fun no matter what. I love pinball. I do pinball all the time. You have to make it fun for the worst players. Yeah. And then everyone else should follow because the, the good players are going to get to go on. They're, they're the ones that win more often than they lose. So as long as you can make it fun for the people that aren't going to win all the time. And I think that's where Pinbird comes in, where it's like other up until the finals, it's just more and more and more pinball. So it doesn't matter if you're terrible and you end up in, E division or, or, or I guess D, D now they create, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. So, uh, but we've had uh, difficulty actually implementing that in our area. Because yeah. ultimately what you're really wanting is not just for people to come back, but you're wanting people to understand that they will get better by coming back. Right. I mean, my entrance into competitive pinball was, Dennis goes, Hey, I'll pay for your ticket in and I'll buy you sure. food. And as a fat guy, I'm like, sure. Why not? And I, and I spent a lot of time not getting better. And, uh, eventually I started getting better and it's, I stopped going because, Hey, Dennis is buying me dinner and it's a time to hang out with my buddies that I don't get nearly as much time to hang out with anymore. And it became a thing where it's like, well, I'm going because I actually want to play pinball and hang out with a whole bunch of people that I see a couple times a month. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. But I ran out of friends to bring. I don't have <laughs> any friends. So, all right. Well, that's all I want to talk about on pinball. So let's go ahead and transition over to, uh, to video games. And, sure. uh, VR or virtual reality. Let's go ahead and start with that. Let's talk a little bit about VR. 
Uh, Martin, you mentioned this as a, as a topic idea. I have a lot of ignorance on VR. So I guess let's just get the ball rolling here on, on the tech. What, what do you think of it as in terms of the current state of VR tech? Cause I, I have some familiarity with, uh, with the Oculus. There's the, what's the, the Vive is the that Vive and, then and the, the PlayStation, the PlayStation's VR. VR setup. Yeah. Which I, I probably yeah. know the most about, but. Martin, what I guess, what's your initial take on the technology as it stands at this point? Okay, so uh, I'll, I'll give a bit of background and then sort of talk about that now. So I, as as a a young, very young child back in the <clears throat> early eighties, um, I I was obsessed with three D movies, absolutely loved them, and I didn't care where it was a good or a bad movie if it was in three D. I was there, and I would watch them repeatedly. I would go to the cinema. So I love 3D. Then cutting to the the first experience I had with VR was it was sort of an arcade machine, but it was more so in sort of family venues. I think it was a – I think the game was called Pterodactyl Nightmare, I think it was, which was the first sort of you stand, you walk into this circular area, and this helmet gets placed on top of your head, um, and it's and it's 3D, right? Very early um, 3D. I actually very think early. I played something like that. Yeah, um, they had one at Worlds of Fun. It, oh, okay. it, and I and I had a lot of fun because for me again it was 3D, but now I could look around and it was 3D, and it was fairly rudimentary. Um, and really, all I all I remember at the time because it was years late. Obviously, now we're looking at the next generation of VR. The, really, the head tracking was the problem. Was the, the quicker it was, the more realistic. There was always a lag back then. So I think what they've done now, they've got the technology really up to a, a place where head tracking is really quite quite quick now. So you're actually getting that really good sense of movement. When it comes to you know the resolution of the games and and the detail, I think you know obviously user experience may may vary. Um, and so most of the gaming that I do is on my PSVR, mainly because my, my actual computer, my, my rig here hasn't been updated for a few years. Um, and that, that's part of this conversation as well, right? So I'm, I'm kind of curious to know what would I do next? But I think the technology right now, um, there's, there's two things that are holding it back. Uh, probably the main one is that it's still a cord, corded, environment rather than it's not wireless and you've got free roaming you've always from my experience got something that's anchoring you back to your seat or where you're standing and you are are conscious of the fact that you've got this physical thing around you that takes you out of the moment uh we agree actually yeah i think on our uh e3 i think yeah i think it was just on the last episode we yeah we did touch on a couple of vr games and i remember for me yeah the the that's the, I think that's the big obstacle on the, on the tech right now. It's just that it needs to get to the wireless place for a lot of people is my, is my sense. Yeah. I know it's probably the barrier at this point for me. I, I do have a PC that would be, it's Oculus ready, but you know, it's in my bedroom. I'm thinking, I don't want to put all this stuff. I mean, I already got the microphone and the headset <laughs> and the game pad all on my desk in there, piled up wires tangled. And it's just like, uh, I don't, I don't think, I don't think so. But visually, I, I think it's at a point where, uh, people are, are willing to embrace it as something fairly immersive. Uh, what about, what do you think? Um, do you think the price is a big barrier still? It doesn't matter about price if the experience 
is worthy of the price. And I think probably the biggest problem that I've got at the moment is I don't think it's got a killer app just yet. I, I don't agree. think mm-hmm. there's anything right now that has really, really understood the VR experience from, from a gamer's perspective. Um, yeah. And, and I know that there's, I was actually talking to somebody that develops in VR recently. Um, and, and it's a real challenge between providing a gaming experience where you can control your, either your avatar, if it's first person, you know, who you are, um, whilst not having too much motion sickness is, is one of them. Um, but also being able to then have as much processing required to have everything so detailed that your brain forgets that it's in a VR environment completely. Right. Yeah. I was in terms of the, the killer app thing. Yeah. That's a, and, and it's hard. I think it's, I think it's challenging when you have a new medium like that developing in the sense of going in and saying, I will make the killer app and it will come true sort of, right. sort of scenario. I was, listening to a uh, game informers podcast, which Don had mentioned on the E3 episodes. So I subscribe to it. It's a good podcast, by the way, for those wanting more video game content. And they mentioned that based off of the steam spy, the concurrent playing on the VR information that was being able to be gathered. Beat Saber is the most popular game. Well, yeah, for obvious reasons, fruit ninja for VR. Yep. Yeah. Well, and, here's the thing. And <laughs> I think, VR is, I would consider it beta, mid beta, maybe even high beta where it's at because of like, like you said, you're still corded. That's an issue. The other thing is, is with the current setup and the current limitations due to movement and everything, the games most likely to work really well and to be a successful, a very successful uh, breakout type game for VR are cockpit type simulations and they're mm-hmm. not a popular game format anymore. Right. They're not like they were in the early nineties when that's what everybody Everyone wanted. wanted that's what goose. everybody wanted. And yeah. we're not there anymore until they can form until, and until they are both a good and B affordable, some sort of movement rig I don't think it's going to take off nearly as much, be it an omnidirectional treadmill things. I've seen several of them, a couple of which looked like they worked okay or something that somebody hasn't even come up with. I think that's going to be one of the big important things for it because the immersion factor and the sheer amount of space taken up, unless you've got an enormous room is problematic. Uh, but then, then that comes down to, you know, accessibility, via price point because right. you know like not everyone's going to be able to afford you know the oculus plus an omnidirectional um what is it what you call it Tre- treadmill. Treadmill. Omnidirectional treadmill, right? treadmill yeah yeah like that that then means there's there's really only a handful of people that can right. really then and and so what it comes back to for me is so uh, okay i'll tell you for for me that the game that that absolutely screamed for a vr mode and it finally got one is Wipeout. So Wipeout, you know, you'll, you'll hear the theme. There's a, a constant theme about space racing games. I love mm-hmm. them. And, and Wipeout is just a phenomenal game. And for ages, I was wanting them to have, um, VR enabled and, and it, and it came a couple of months ago. And I got to tell you, it didn't disappoint. 
it did not disappoint. It is phenomenal to play Wipeout in VR. But it's got to be more of an incentive for me to play that in VR rather than sit on the couch, watch it on my screen, and be satisfied that that's still a great experience. Um, another one is Drive Club, which is it's a it's a it's a solid um, driving game, and in VR it is phenomenal. But I would still probably play it more so just on my screen than in VR, just for the convenience. Well, here's a thought, and it's something that would make me go kind of crazy to get something in VR. I can guarantee you if it came to like a PlayStation uh, or if it came to PlayStation 4, I would be getting a PlayStation 4 and PSVR. But what if they had a, a like a solid uh, licensed version of say a modern t- version of one of the old Star Wars X-Wing games? Something like that. Oh, for sure. Something, something that had a broader appeal, uh, but was still worked within the system. So it was still a cockpit style game. I mean, something like that would, I would go nuts trying to get into something like that. Everything I've heard about the VR availability of the Star Wars thing they had on PSVR, uh, was that it was amazing. The, the, it was a tech demo, I guess. Uh, I heard every everybody I talked to who actually played it thought it was amazing, but it had limitations, mm-hmm. right? As everything is going to, but I mean that's I I just think until they get the right thing to make people spend the money on it, they bring or they bring the price point down, and the movement thing's always going to be a problem, right? And that and that's where my and sort of this where we <clears throat> we are all basically talking now about this going mainstream or not. And that, that sit on the couch syndrome sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Anytime I've seen things try and buck that trend, they lose. Right. I mean, last gen and at the start of this gen, in fact, that, that PS move and the connect, that's what those were. They weren't VR, but they were the idea of using body motion to play games, but it was very difficult. And eventually games came out, at least on the connect. And I know, well, on the move as well, I played some of that. The, where you could do it from a seated position, but most of the games weren't like that. It's like, right. here, you're going to do mountain climbing. So you're going to simulate that you're climbing a mountain. But you know what? After 30 minutes, my arms are tired. I'm well, out yeah. of shape. And it's like, yep. I just want to sit down and be a quote unquote real gamer with a controller <laughs> and, and, and pop some headshots. Uh, not, not stand here and waddle around in front of the camera. You well, here's the other thing about VR as well. So this this comes back to this discussion um, that I had with someone that develops in VR. And, and I asked him this question. I said, why is it that I can play VR for 15 to 20 minutes and once done, I take the headset off and I am literally drenched in sweat and I am physically exhausted from, from VR? Um, and his explanation was this. Um, and, I'll, and I'll try and see if I can explain this well enough. So effectively, your brain in VR, you've got this this world. You, you sort of lose your boundaries. I may be in my study that I'm in right now, but as soon as I put the VR helmet on, um, those dimensions are gone. And you are movement. You are having movement, but your body is stationary. So what's actually happening is every mi- microsecond, 
your brain is having to compensate for the fact that your body isn't moving, but your brain thinks it is moving. So every muscle in your body is having these micro corrections to try and stabilize itself. And as a result, you are just having a workout, even though you don't know you're having a workout. So Again, when I'm sitting here or I'm coming up to my room and I think I'm going to play a game, it's like, ooh, do I want to sit on the couch and play for an hour to two hours or do I want to put the, the helmet on and 15, 20 minutes, I'm spent. Wow. I'd never thought about that. That's interesting though, the, yeah. the brain science of it. Yeah. Let's go ahead and transition to something. We're going, we'll look back <laughs> now. We've been looking at the future, but now we, <laughs> mu- we must turn to the past. Because that's the only way to truly understand the future. Sure. So, Martin, you mentioned that you are uh, were a big console gamer. So let's start talking about best games from the from the various consoles. And I, as I thought about this, I decided that the best way to go about this would just be to go through the eight generations. Uh, don't worry, you don't have to know know them all by heart. I've got I've got cliff notes here, so I'll, I'll say what the generations were. Uh, we'll, we'll do that. I'll say some of the big systems that were in that generation. And then if you have a favorite game from any of those particular consoles, let's just throw it out there and give the logic behind it. And Tony, I know, especially as we get to some of the later generations, you're more of a PC gamer, but a lot of the games were cross-platform. So well, I think you'll be and, able to. And I always say that, but when I actually was going through the list mm-hmm. and looking at it, I, I at this point, thanks to your modification of the Generation 8, I've actually owned a machine from every generation yeah. except the first. Sure. <laughs> so. So let's start with the first because actually, yeah, I, I don't, I have no meaningful time on any of the first, but maybe Martin does. The first generation was the generation that started in 1972. These are sort of the pre-cartridge systems. So it's things like the Magnavox Odyssey, Atari's Pong system and the Coloco Telstar. Did you play any of those, Martin? Look, I, I did play the Coleco Telstar. I didn't own it. Uh, it was my, my neighbor growing up had it. Mm. Okay. But I, I may have played it once, possibly twice. <laughs> so no, no strong feelings on it. No, no feelings either way. Okay. All right. So, so we'll move right into the second generation. I think that's where we're going to start having some content. Yeah. So, yep. uh, th- that began in 1976. I'm not putting in dates because it was. Oh, yeah. It no. was, oh, it was, well, here's the It's problem. a big crossover. Yeah. 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 There, it was the crossover. And then you'd see like second generation, 1976 to 1990. I thought someone had gone in and edited wikipedia and put in wrong information because i've seen that before but it was because for example the atari 2600 was made and sold until 1990 because it was that popular and so they did it until they weren't being sold anymore and that and i saw all the generations were corrupted that way so i was like this is worthless our listeners will hate this it'll sound (laughs) like a bunch of crap so i threw it out (laughs) so 1976 is the start of the second gen so that's going to be things like the atari 2600 and 5200 the Magnavox Odyssey again shows up here uh, in television, television and ColocoVision. So, yeah. Martin, any any of these that okay. you had? Well, one thing I just wanted to point out here: this I, I find this funny because for me, this was first generation console wars. in In Australia, it was Atari versus Intellivision. You were either Atari or you were Intellivision, and you would argue to you were blue in the face that your console was better than the other first the console television was. was better period wow mm. shots mm. fired mm. But i don't think okay. Martin's going to agree with you i think he's going to agree with me but uh 
I didn't own the Intellivision. I of this generation, I owned the Atari twenty six hundred or the v- VCS, we called it. Right. Um, and I owned a Vectrex. Oh. Ooh. Okay. Uh, any uh, so be- best game in your view on on either of them? I guess. Well, I, I actually do. I, I did a lot of research for this um, this chat today, so I've Good. actually got a lot of. Good. I do. I do. <laughs> my my favorite game on on the Atari twenty six hundred, and I probably go back to the one that I played the most. And there, there was really two. Missile Command was my favorite game. Okay, absolutely. Yeah, good I, I good loved pick. it in the arcade. Loved I, it yeah, that was. I loved it in the arcade. I played so much of that in the arcade. Yep. Um, but the other one, which was probably a, a lesser known one, but I, I played it. To de- and particularly because it was multiplayer, four-player, and it was called Maze Craze. And it was just this very basic – it was almost like a maze that you would find in a newspaper, you know, where you got to get your pen. Right. And put, yeah. but, but you And you would have a little block that you were, and you would all just race around trying to get to the exit. It was fun. Four-player at that, le- at that generation is kind of an impressive little thing. Yeah, for sure. Um. But again, one one thing I think that 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 particular console is is really known for, besides obviously ET, is just some of the the worst ports, like you know Asteroids and Pac Man and Space Invaders. They were pretty bad, but you could play them at home, right? Which is so much cheaper, yeah. Or in theory, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) I did not Um, last long at Asteroids in the arcade. No, right. And then, obviously, with the Vectrex, there was only really one game that was decent, and that was Mindstorm, which was an Asteroids clone itself. Um, and Scramble was pretty good as well, but I'd rather play that in the arcade. Tony, you mentioned a television it was the right answer. Yeah. So <clears throat> I, had into, I, I had an Intellivision. Okay. There were a bunch of games that I played on it that were fun, and most of them were pretty much the exact same games uh, on 2600 with different names. Okay. Uh, there was a tank game that was called Tanks, as I recall. You're probably yeah. right. And it was basically combat. All right. Yeah. Not my favorite game. Awesome. Really good yeah. game, though. Now, the one of the things that Intellivision had that always it kind of weirded me out is the controllers. The way the controller was is it had a big flat disc that you put disc, your thumb yeah. on and move the disc. Oh, okay. And then on the face of the controller, there were side buttons, but then there were like six or nine buttons across the front and mm-hmm. every single game came with a little plastic card that you would slide on top overlay. of those buttons mm. it was yeah it had an overlay and it would tell you what the buttons did so you sit there with your thumb with one finger and then your other hand hitting the buttons great controller i mean nowadays it'd be terrible nowadays but i liked it and i had problems when i played friends ataris because i was so used to that but the best game on Intellivision is a game that I've played again recently and even on modern systems. And I played it in the arcade when we were in Texas two years ago. And it's still a ton of fun. Burger Time. The music <laughs> yes. to Burger Time is still, as soon as the music started, I was just, it was like I was a kid again. I smiled. I was so happy. And I played. And that game is bloody hard. Mm-hmm. But I enjoyed it so much. And playing it again recently, I still enjoy that game. That is the game that I love more than anything on Intellivision. Wow. My sister had a Burger Time, one of those little portable ones that where it's just black and they have the yeah. little LCD games. Mm-hmm. She had that mm-hmm. Burger Time because I'd, I'd play it more than she did. So, um, All right. Well, for me, I only own the 2600. Uh, it's the only one I really had any time on. Uh, I did not own my favorite game, but uh, Pitfall. 
Yeah. I don't know why yeah. I didn't own Pitfall, but I just, I really, I just liked the idea of it. I liked how it looked for that, for that generation. I thought it was challenging, but still approachable. Uh, of the games I owned, the one I probably played the most was Combat. For the yep. two-player tank battles. Yep. And that's almost almost exclusively the only mode in it I played. That's the only mode we played on the tank one we had, mm-hmm. which, was, like I said, was basically a combat yeah. clone. But, uh, but yeah, combat combat was a real great uh, – yeah. 2600's controller was terrible. That joystick was terrible. <laughs> it's was it's interesting if you – I think it's even discussed in that book, The Art of Atari, which uh, I have a copy of. It's it's great if you ever want to look at all the painted artwork that they did for the cartridges and, the, mm-hmm. and their pinballs and the arcade games. But – that, uh, just as an aside, that controller design was originally for what was going to be basically a gen one, generation one style game where you would, it was a tank. Well, it's like combat and you just plug in that whole console and that was to look like a little command thing and the controllers sat in it when you weren't playing it. And they kept that design when they brought out the 2600. But I believe the designer said, you know, if we knew this console was going to be popular and people are actually going to buy and play these things for years, we would have come up with something more comfortable than that. Cause it's only that square. So it would fit in that, in the yeah. original casing, which had nothing to do with the, Anything you know, the else. Darth Vader console type, which was the one I had was the Vader design, the all black one. Yeah. Called the, or the, wood you didn't grain have ones. the wood grain. No, no I had the, the wood grain. Yeah. Oh, you were one of the, yeah, one of the early ones. Yeah. For sure. It looked better. It, it did. I agree. But yeah. I still have my cheap black and white one. I actually used to have my black one. I used to have it hooked up here in the kitchen area where we're recording. I put it and tested it. I do own E.T. Uh, it is not on my yeah, list. I did own it too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just terrible to play. Okay. Let's go to the third generation. This starts in 1983. It's also commonly just referred to as the 8-bit era. So this will be systems like the Commodore 64. Uh, the Atari 7800, the Sega Master System, and of course the NES, the Nintendo Entertainment System, or Famicom, as it was also called. So, uh, Tony, you want to lead us off this time? I went with the one that I think everybody did. I, I had the NES. That was the only system I had from this generation. Uh, I played a fair amount of Sega Master System because I had a neighbor who had it, but NES is the one I played pretty much all the time. I had so many games for that system. I mean, Mega Man, Mega Man 2, all the, the, uh, the, the original Legend of Zelda, uh, every Super Mario that came out on it. I had all of them and I played them all. And this one was probably the hardest category I looked at for games that I really liked because there are some really popular well-known games for that system that was really good. There were some games that I don't know if anybody else has even heard of that I enjoyed, like um Gunsmoke, I think it was called. Oh, Gunsmoke. I had Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke was a great little yeah. top vertical scrolling shooter game where you were a cowboy. Enjoyed it a lot. But in the end, I kind of went back to what I think is one of the games pretty much everyone will think about when they see NAS Super Mario 3. Mm. Yeah, good pick. I... It just, it took the, what started with Mario and evolved it in such a way that you could see what it was, but it was even more and it was even more fun. And I know I played it more than anything else was, would have been Super Mario 3. Okay. I, it's a great pick. Uh, Martin, uh, what, what systems were you familiar with with this gen? Okay. I'm, I'm glad you said what systems was, was I familiar with because. I did not 
nor have I ever owned a third generation console. <gasps> Abomination. <laughs> no, but no. That's shocking. Uh, let me let me tell you. In my defence, this is why. Because that was when I went to school, and that was boarding school. So no. I didn't. I didn't spend a lot of time at home, so therefore didn't need to have a console. But also in my defence, I had pinball machines at school. So oh, wow, you know, fancy. There you pants. go. I went to the Fancy Pants Academy. <laughs> <laughs> it was like that. So whilst George well, that playing explains Black the chair. Knight, yeah. I was playing Black Knight and you know Black Hole and all those kinds of things. Anyway, awesome. But, okay, well, no, that makes a lot but, of sense. But my, my my closest friend had a Commodore 64, so whenever I would go over to his place, we would play the Commodore 64. And so there, there really is one game that absolutely stood out amongst that, and that was Impossible Mission. I don't think I'm familiar with it. No. Oh, oh my God. Uh, I, I just I, – I, I just remember – you know, we we would start playing this game at you know seven o'clock at night, and we'd still be up five o'clock in the morning, still trying to play this. It's a um, it's a side-scrolling platformer and puzzle where you you are in someone's high-tech underground lair, and all these robots are after you, and you just go from room to room, and each room is an individual puzzle. And some of them are simple, some of them are hard. You pick up little clues, and then you've got to go to this other screen where you you get all these different shapes that you've got to try and combine into a puzzle to overload the main and then kill the robot man at the end. But Impossible Mission, and it is one of the, the more popular titles on Commodore 64, so check that one out. Yeah, uh, I wasn't, I didn't get to play the Commodore 64. Uh, growing up, everyone I knew in the third gen had NES, and that's yeah. it. They didn't, they didn't have any. I think maybe I knew someone who said he had a Sega Master, but he never let me play it, so that, that didn't count. Yeah, I so, said I had a neighbor, and they moved after like mm-hmm. a year. So, so in terms of the uh, for the NES, uh, I almost went Super Mario Brothers three, but I went Super Mario Brothers two. I, I know a game that wasn't originally even going to be a Mario game, but I just I think ultimately I probably put more time on it than any other game. I don't know. It's close with Contra. Oh yeah, I played Contra. A lot of Contra. I played a lot of Contra. But but Contra, I, I generally, I didn't like to play it alone. I like to play it mm-hmm. two-player. And so Super Mario Brothers 2, though, was for single-player. So I would go in. I just like that you got to pick between Mario, Luigi, Peach, and Toad, and they played different. They had different speeds, and they had different jump capabilities. And so what was ideal actually varied quite a bit, depending on what the level was. So I just, uh, the music to it, it was so colorful, and all of the levels looked really different more different than Super Mario Brothers ever looked. Yeah. And so I just, overall, it had almost these RPG light elements with character selection and stuff that are lacking in Super 3 that made Super 3 not quite as high on my list. Uh, that was when I, the store like sold that one Super 3 I got early before right. it was publicly available. I got early yeah. due to an accident. It was a birthday present. So I have really fond memories of Super Mario Brothers 3, but but two two would be my favorite from the generation, which is just impressive because of the fact that Super Mario Two wasn't a Super Mario Brothers game until it came to the U.S. Yep, but that's but, but that's what won me over wasn't that it's Mario. What wins me, just like in pinball, is gameplay. Yeah, yeah, that's what, now that's what matters. One thing that none of us mentioned that it was pretty high on my list uh, was Final Fantasy. 
Which one first? The first one. Okay. Just because that was a game type that I'd never really touched until that game. Yeah, I so, think I, mean, it, it I think had, until that you could argue RPGs were mostly text on text based on computers. Right. They weren't well, on yeah. they weren't on yeah. gaming systems. Because everything I'd done before that was, yeah, text based on a computer. And that was the first thing. That and Dragon Warrior. I played a lot of both of those games. Mm-hmm. But I did a lot of Final Fantasy. I had Dragon Warrior and played as much. I, I it was too challenge too too hard for me to enjoy, I think was the issue. Yeah. So let's go fourth gen. That starts 1987 and unsurprisingly was commonly just called the 16 bit era. So these yeah. are the Sega Genesis, uh, Neo Geo and the Super Nintendo. Uh, I'll go ahead and start. I, I did have some time on Sega Genesis, but Me too. I, I don't really have a favorite game from it. I, there, I was friends who had them. So we'd play Sonic. We'd, there was that when they had the CD drive come out. What was the stupid game with the, with the, People are invading the house. The ninja they had all these live night action trap. night trap. Oh, I remember Double switch. Tra- oh, I played. I played. Um, was it Sewer Sharks? Okay, I forgot. Yeah. I yeah. Sewer Sharks. I don't think I played that one. But so what I'll say is, I owned the Super Nintendo. Didn't own as nearly as many games as I did as on the Nintendo because I started to do more PC gaming during yeah. this time period. But uh, the game I will pick on Super Nintendo that I felt was the best was. One of the early ones, Legend of Zelda Link to the Past. Uh, I've mentioned it before. This was the game where you'd go in and then it just started to rain. And that was when I was, I knew I was in the new generation. And it just, it, to me, it was amazing. It was a deep game. They still speed run it to this day. It's, it's, it could be argued in as, one of the best pre 3D, uh, Zelda games that was ever created. Uh, but honorable mention, cause I'm all in honorable mentions as well. Super Street Fighter 2 Turbo. Oh man. You remember that mm-hmm. one, Tony? Yeah. Tony and I were, uh, were roommates our, our first year in college along with, with two other guys and we lived off campus and we did not have cable initially. We didn't have any TV. So it was a Super Nintendo hooked up to the television in the living room, and all we did were Street Fighter tournaments. Yep, That's constantly, nonstop. Yep. Wow. So, Martin, uh, your thoughts on good fourth gen? Okay, so in the, you'll see a theme. You were you were Nintendo. I was Sega through mm. a lot of these generations. So I did have what we call here the the Sega. Mega Drive, which you call the Genesis. Right. I also had the Sega CD, and I also had the Sega 32X, if you remember that. Ooh. Oh, I never knew anyone who owned one. Yeah. I, yeah, that's just... I'm that one person. <laughs> and I think I think they actually, did they release something like, I think it was the called the Neptune, which was all three in one? Anyway. I, I remember hearing about the Neptune, but I, I don't know anything about its specs. No. No, either do I. But I mean, that, um, that, that, that's like out there with having somebody who actually had a, a, a Neo Geo. It's like you always heard somebody, oh, I've got a uh, cousin who has a Neo Geo, but nobody actually knew them. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll get to fifth generation. I can tell you about my Neo Geo. Um, <laughs> but, but also, okay, so this generation was, was really interesting. There was, there was really only two things that stood out. I was either playing platformers or I was playing RPGs, and it's really where I got into RPGs. Um, I've got so many games I could talk about now, but really what I'll say is I think for my, my favorite probably Sega game was actually Luna Eternal Blue. So Luna, the first game was called the Silver Star, which was a, an RPG. 
And it was the first RPG that I played that I just, I got. I got the storyline. It had a lot of animation, so it was using the CD format. It then got remade in subsequent, um, I think like on the Saturn and all that kind of stuff, and maybe even on PlayStation. But it was just the, the first real sprawling turn-based RPG that I absolutely loved. But also at the same time, as far as platformers go, um, I think Earthworm Jim was just one of the mm. best fresh. Oh, that was a good game. Yeah, it was. Remember how good that was? Um, yeah. But for, so that was on, on Sega. Um, SNES, for me, I'm going to go down um, RPG territory again. And, and as, as much as Final Fantasy III was fantastic, Chrono Trigger for me oh, was the best RPG. Oh, that, yeah. I, people are probably going to contact me for not naming Chrono Trigger. That <laughs> is an all, that is an all time classic. And Isn't I it? feel, I feel well ahead of its time. It was way ahead of its time. And mm. I never owned it. That's part of the reason I didn't include Same. it because the first time I actually played it was a port on another system. Yeah. I played it on the PS one as a port. Right. Sure. And I was like, where was this game all my life? Right. Yeah. In the shadows of, of history. It it's was amazing. just incredible at the time. It was, it was, it, I don't know how you, it was just fresh. It was just how, how can they make this genre just completely amazing? And they did it. And again, it was, it was story. I mean, you've got, it was 16 bits. So you got these little sprites there, but somehow you get connected to those characters. And that's what a good RPG should do. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Tony, your fourth gen stuff. Thoughts? I had a SNES. Which, no surprise, I, now this was until extremely recently my last Nintendo console. Right. Because I, at this point I was, I was primarily a computer gamer and I had Game Boys and I've had all the flavors of Game Boy. But there are so many good games and I, just out of curiosity, I pulled up a top 100 list and looked at it and Every single one of these games I'm looking at, I'm like, I loved that game. I loved that game. I loved that game. This is going to be hard. And then I realized that every time I think of SNES, the game I think of, while it's on the top 100, it's at 37. UN Squadron. I don't think I ever played UN Squadron. UN Squadron was Capcom. It was a very early Capcom game. And it is basically a... It is based upon an anime that I didn't see until like the mid 2000s. So I was playing the, I played the game 10, 15 years before I even ever knew anything about or saw the anime. Uh, but it is basically a side scrolling shooter. It's like Gradius, except for you're flying, uh, actual real life military jets. And there's like, like the first boss, I think it was the first boss. It might have been the second boss was a giant land-based aircraft carrier. It was a giant tank aircraft carrier that you had to Hmm. blow up all the little parts on this and that. But it was very much a Gradius side-scroller type game. I still love that game type. But this one is the one that entered me into the thing. And it's the one that I fell in love with the most. And it's the game that I regret not still having more than Link more than Mario World, more than the Final Fantasies, uh, 
that's the one that I most regret not having because when I think of SNES, that's the game I think of. One time, uh, they also made it for arcade. And when we were doing a thing in high school, when we went ice skating, uh, the school, we went to the ice skating rink up there. It was for some party. It might not, it might have been eighth grade graduation. It was some party thing. We were at the ice rink and they had the UN squadron arcade there. And I plugged like $20 into that game, even though I had it at home and I could have just gone home and plugged it in and played it because I loved that game so much. So yeah, a little unknown little side Capcom thing. That was my favorite game. That's what I think of when I think SNES. Okay. Awesome. Well, let's move to the fifth generation. What I might, I think this is probably the most complicated, <laughs> complicated <laughs> as far as the generation went. So, right. So it starts in 1993, but it gets called the 32 bit era. It gets called the 64 bit era. And it also gets called the 3D era, all depending on which particular system we're talking about. So some of the key example systems were the Atari Jaguar, the PlayStation, or often now called the PS1. Uh, the Sega Saturn would fall in this category, and so would the Nintendo 64. So, Martin, you mentioned having a lot of thoughts about the fifth generation, so I'll let you lead off on this one. Okay, so I owned five consoles in this uh, generation. Monkeys. Wow. So I had a 3DO, I had a PlayStation, I had a Saturn, I had a Nintendo 64, and I had a Neo Geo. Neo Geo, I'll just talk about very quickly, ridiculously expensive, giant cartridges, you know, you'd be spending $150 to $200 for a decent game. Um, King of Fighters was the only decent one. That's <laughs> yep, it. I, yep. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so King of Fighters is the, if you end up buying a Neo Geo, that is the one you need. Or, yeah. or Mame it. Yeah. Yeah. Or a- any variation. There was a lot of different ones that came out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, so this was really hard for me with this because through this generation, I played a lot and i made a lot of gaming on this it was really hard for me to pull out and and i I sort of did the same thing i was i was pulling up all these lists and i was looking at these games going oh my god i love that i love that it just reminded me of such good gaming i mean it really was where 3d came into the home right yeah um uh, uh, 3DO, it was, uh, it was terrible. Gex was probably the only decent one there. I also got into PGA Tour on that one. That's my only golf game I've ever played. The PlayStation was really hard to, to really narrow it down. There were some great fighting games. I remember Toshinden, if you remember that, that was the, when that first came out, that was amazing. Um, great, um, uh, platformers as well. My favorite platformer of that time was Pandemonium. Um, but another really clever platformer came out, which was Oddworld. If you remember Abe's Odyssey. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Right. Great RPGs like Final Fantasy seven came out, which was amazing. My favorite RPG at, uh, for that console was Xenogears. Have you played that one? I, I haven't played it, but I've heard of it. Yeah. And Sukoden was also another one, but my, my favorite game for the PlayStation was what you called Wipeout XL. We called Wipeout 2097. Interesting. Futuristic racing. Yep. Sega Saturn, again, that was my console of choice was Sega Saturn for this era. Again, so many different amazing games like Nice Into Dreams, played that. Um, I played a port of that. Yeah, great game. Great fighting game. So it was really known about the fighting game. So 
two two games stood out for me, Fighting Vipers and Last Bronx. But I also loved the virtual series, the so virtual fighter, virtual cop, oh, yeah. virtual racing. They were great. Cigarelli was a great port on that as well. Um, but for me, and I'll say um, Wipeout was my game of this generation, but my close second was Panzer Dragoon. Mm. Oh, yeah. Okay, that, good pick. that was very good. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it was just this this new experience. Um, and I'm, I'm probably cutting to one of the, the topics later, but I, I reckon if you ported Panzer Dragoon into VR, you'd have my money. Tony, your thoughts on Gen 5. Gen 5 was when I was primarily playing PC games, and there was a lot of them. But uh, when it came to consoles, I did own one. I owned a PlayStation. And I remember a bunch of games, like Bushido Blade. Uh, my my oh, favorite fighting yes. game of the PlayStation. One, yeah. one oh, hit could wow. win. I really wish that that style would come back. We've seen a little bit with like Dive Kick on PC and right. such. Right. No, I mean, but. Anyway, no. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, so that was good, a good, good game. There's there a lot of good games, but like with the SNES, when I think of PlayStation, I only think of one game Final Fantasy VII. Yeah. Because it changed everything yep. for me. It had a magic system that I loved. It had characters that I actually cared about. Correct. And the way it all put together, the way it all was assembled was the game I played probably the most. It was the game when I got the PlayStation, uh, I got it for Christmas and I got the, I got Final Fantasy VII and a couple of other games. And I'll, I honestly don't remember what the other games I got with it were. I just remember I got Final Fantasy VII because when I, I when I came home from Christmas, that's what I played, and that's what I played continually. And as I recall, I got that. I don't remember what year it was. Oh, that game. That's the game for me, <laughs> the PlayStation. <laughs> just everything about that game. Now that I've stolen Dennis's thunder. No, it's it's fine. Yeah, because uh, he's seen my he's seen my notes on the on the one note, <laughs> so he knows that that was my pick. Uh, and so yeah, I, I there's not really a lot to elaborate on. I'd seen Final Fantasy VII. Uh, it made me want the PlayStation. In fact, this is probably the only time I can think of where I got a console explicitly to play uh, one particular game, and so I got that. So Final Fantasy VII, it was just. I hadn't really played Final Fantasy since Final Fantasy in the US it was called Final Fantasy 2, it's actually Final Fantasy 4. And so beyond that, I hadn't really played a lot of RPGs since then on console and that brought me back into it. And then later on I picked up things like Bushido Blade which I really liked and I got some of the ports to the older Final Fantasies. So I played Sweet. Final Fantasy 5 and 6 and 6 is a real in some ways I think 6 is an even better story, but yeah, but in terms of just making me want this generation, it was Final Fantasy VII. Yeah. Now, I think I played more ports on PlayStation than it, because that's where I played Chrono Trigger. That's where I played mm. a lot of that older, the old previous generation stuff when they started coming out on PlayStation. Okay. Well, let's move into the sixth generation. So that's 1998 is our start date. Sometimes called the 128-bit era, but usually it's just called the sixth gen. 
these are the systems like the PS2, the GameCube, the original Xbox, and the Sega Dreamcast. I'm not actually going to weigh in on this one because I did not play much of anything in this generation. I was almost exclusively PC gaming. I did mm-hmm. not own any of these systems. I, da- I mean, like I played Grand Theft Auto 3 on PlayStation 2. I played uh, Soul Calibur on Dreamcast. I've tried a couple of the Zelda games on GameCube. So I've tried, other than the original Xbox, which I've never played, I've played a few games on these, but not enough to have a favorite. Yeah. So Tony, go ahead and lead off this time. If you wouldn't mind. I owned two consoles from this generation. Mm. I had the PlayStation 2 okay. and the Dreamcast. I'll start with the PlayStation 2, which I think was the better machine. It was the more popular machine, at least. You know, This was where we started to see console wars that were being clearly won right. by a single company. And it was yeah. definitely Sony. I mean, yeah. they really made a name for themselves with the PS1. But it wasn't arguably the most powerful system. But when the PS2 came out, they had all the good games. Right. And they did. Now, on the PS2, I played a lot of games. But there are two that come to mind. Is That's when I first started playing MMOs. Because unlike nowadays, you could plug a keyboard in and play games. And I played Final Fantasy XI. Right. And I played a lot of Final Fantasy XI, mm-hmm. as did Dennis, but he was on PC. And that was the great thing, is we played together. Mm-hmm. Even though I was sitting in one room on my PS2, and he was in a different room on his PC, we were able to play. And it was a lot of fun. And I enjoyed it. Until I burned out on it. Because, man, that game was hard. That mm-hmm. was before the... That was, that was so that hard. That was where, without... Obviously, we're not diving into MMOs specifically. But right. That was the big... That was the big breakthrough that World of Warcraft had. Mm-hmm. Was they they got they cracked the formula on how to make an MMO approachable, but still have an end game that would keep people coming back and playing. And Final Fantasy XI was still following this old model of you have to group up. It takes forever to level. You finally get into the end game, which if you bother doing is a bunch of bots competing for claims, people hacking the games to try and figure out ways to to get because things weren't instanced right. so you were competing with other people just for the opportunity to fight monsters I remember was, and they never wanted to re- up gear they didn't want to I hear they changed it eventually but they never wanted to re- make a piece of gear at end game obsolete so you just kept like slicing like a tiny cucumber these little thin layers like a like a baklava you're making right. you're like I don't know why I'm doing these food analogies and sure. and you're hungry and it was just yeah, yeah. And it was just like, what, what is this? It's, it was a bunch of, it just, it just wasn't, it had some great ideas. I really enjoyed it, but Warcraft was a better MMO. Yes. I mean, uh, I have I wonderful you, memories. Final Fantasy XI was my first MMO that I played as well. Um, and I probably played it for a month and gave it up because I, after a month, I had gotten nowhere and still didn't understand the game. Mm. Yeah. No, I did Endgame in 11. It wasn't my first. I actually did Ultima Online back in college uh, very briefly, only like two months. But uh, yeah, no, I, I liked a lot about 11, but I hated far more. Right. And then when I knew I had friends that were jumping ship for Warcraft and I was like, okay, I'll jump. That was me. I was one of the guys who jumped ship for Warcraft. Sure. Someone in my in-game uh, guild on the on Final Fantasy 11 went as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, so... That's also why I ended up getting a seventh gen console, but we're not at seventh gen. Right. So, so that all of that said, that's not my favorite game on PS2. 
My favorite game on PS2 is Naval Ops Warship Gunner. A boat game. A boat game. Are you noticing something? I like <laughs> boats. Yes. So- Naval Ops Warship Gunner is a uh, game that is basically, it's set in a, it's does for naval games what Ace Combat does for oh, okay. flying games. I know Ace Combat. So it's an alternate world where everything is crazy. Mm-hmm. And there's crazy super weapons and there's this and that. Now it starts out very normal with like World War II era ships and you start out in a destroyer and it's like Ace Combat. You drive your ship around, you shoot your guns, but you can build and modify your ship to make it exactly how you want with the exact weapons you want. And the ships just keep getting bigger and bigger and crazier. And you're sitting here, two hold battleships. It's basically an enormous catamaran that you cover in so many guns and it's just sheer insanity. And that game I played so much of, and I was so disappointed it was a series that never really continued. There was a second one, and then there was a third similar game, but it was more of a Admiralty Command RTS-ish type game. None of them were as good as that first one, though the second one came close. So much fun. And I played a ton of it. And as the response should be, in pretty much all of these, like like in PlayStation and PlayStation 2 and a lot of these that we're going to talk about, Ace Combat games for those games are pretty much always in my top five. Okay. None of them quite break to the number one spot ever. But I just love the Ace Combat games. The super arcade crazy. The one Ace Combat I don't like is the one that got rid of all the craziness. And that was uh, Assault. I can't remember. I've played Hori- it, or Horizon Assault Horizon. Assault Horizon. Ace Combat Assault Horizon. Yeah. yeah. And that was in the Xbox era. Yes. So. But then on Dreamcast, I had a ton of Dreamcast games, and none of it mattered because the only game that ever got played was Soul Calibur. Yeah. And Soul Calibur was played just I mean, Mike, who's been hosted are on us with us in the past, and me would play that game. It would literally, we'd start playing at like five o'clock in the evening. We would stop long enough to get food. And then we would play until we both passed out. And it got to the point on that game where we had all, we had the, we had the round timers turned off because it'd be a draw because we, we'd put down the round timer and neither of us had even gotten a hit in yet because we were, we'd gotten so good at blocking. We each had a character and that's pretty much the only character we played. We started playing random characters just because it took so long to get a match done because we were playing the same characters we were always good with. And that game led to my love of Soul Calibur. That game led, that was probably if I had to set down Soul Calibur, is my favorite fighting game of all time. And it's because of the memories. I mean, and while this is a slight side trip, Soul Calibur, we played so much Soul Calibur, and we loved Soul Calibur so much that for my birthday one year, we found out that uh, the Cowboy Bebop movie was going to be aired in a theater in St. Louis. And we found right, like, Real quickly after it first came to America, only a couple months out, there was a Soul Calibur 2 machine in St. Louis. So we drove the four hours to St. Louis and spent hours playing Soul Calibur 2 until it was time to go to the theater and watch the Cowboy Bebop movie. And then drove four hours home 
And then I'm pretty sure I passed out on the floor of the townhouse hallway, as I recall, when we got home. Because I want to say I went upstairs and I sat down on the floor and was talking to, I think, you, Dennis. And me and Mike were talking, and I'm pretty sure I fell asleep on the floor because I recall waking up and moving to the bed at some point in the night. Yeah, you fall asleep a lot. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Martin, 6th Gen. 6th Gen. So I owned a PlayStation 2, a Dreamcast, a GameCube, and an Xbox. Wow. Yeah, that's enough. So, like, um, all of, like, all of them, but go, like, like, go on. <laughs> all that matter. <laughs> but again, I just want to call out some, I guess, franchises that started this generation as well. So you've got things like Devil May Cry, Ratchet oh, and Clank, yeah. mm-hmm. Kingdom Hearts started okay. at this one. I did, oh, I, I did actually play that. a little bit of that on the PS2. I, hated it. I liked it, but I didn't finish it. Yeah. Um, what are Animal Crossing? Started this mm. generation. My well. sister loves Animal Crossing. Yeah, I love it. Loved Animal Crossing. Burnout. Uh, oh, the Burnout games. I completely yep. forgot about them. Halo started this generation mm-hmm. as well. I played it um, remastered. I didn't play it originally, though. Yeah, or, yeah, I did um, at launch. Um, but for the four consoles, I'll give you my my top and my second pick. Um, my For the PlayStation 2, my favorite game was Final Fantasy X. Hands down, mm. easily. Okay, it was a good, good game. game. Yeah, I enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah, I I loved the storyline. I loved the, the graphics. I loved the the combat system. I, I loved that ball. crazy underwater basketball polo oh, game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was awesome. Um, but the the my honorable mention for PlayStation Two goes to Eco or Ico, whatever you call it. Okay, Do you yeah. remember that one? Yeah, I remember the name, but I I never played it. I never played it. Oh. Spectacular for its time, um, really innovative um, uh, platforming mechanics. Visually, it was beautiful. Storyline was just really interesting. Not not so much a lot of um, speech, but just very atmospheric. Um, it was a, a great game. Um, Dreamcast is interesting because that again, Sega. I was a Dreamcast fanboy. Um, it, it was really hard to, to say what was my favorite, but the one that I probably played the most was Fantasy Star Online. And I played it a, a, an extraordinary amount, uh, only to be superseded with um, World of Warcraft as far as online game time goes. Mm-hmm. Um, but Shenmue, Shenmue 1 and okay. 2, yeah. Yeah. Dreamcast, um, absolutely loved it. Just just something that added a, a new sort of, I don't know whether you'd say it was a new genre, but it was just a, a whole new level to that particular genre. Um, GameCube, I sort of mentioned Animal Crossing was my second favorite game. My first, my favorite game was Eternal Darkness. Okay. I played that. Yeah. Uh, I didn't have one, but I, I've played some of that game and I've watched a lot of that game played. That's a solid game. Yeah. That's, that's the only, like, I, if I finish a game, that's it. I will never play it again. Um, honestly as a rule this is the only game i've ever played through twice and in fact i played it through three times because there was three different endings mm. that's how much i loved it wow Abs- absolutely and and i don't know if you if you remember this was the one that tried to mess mess with your head with some of the things that it would do where it would look like the game was glitching okay it was very cool yep. yeah as 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 you would go more down into um, psychosis or chaos, the actual game would physically start tricking you, like your your sprite would reduce in size or it would fall through walls. 
And and I and I won't say it because I hope that people do play it, but there is actually one thing that it does which was the most frightening thing that a game could ever do uh, where it, it tricks you within. I won't say it because I just want people to experience it, but for that alone, um, it's my favorite game. Um, and Xbox, wow. Obviously, Halo was fantastic and Burnout, but there was a particular game that I loved and I played the most, and it was called Quantum Redshift. I am and not familiar with it. That's it's it's effectively a Wipeout clone. Oh. And it's actually from one of the original developers that left, um, formed their own studio, and that's what they produced. And it was fantastic. It was it was um, the graphics were absolutely superb. It was very fast. It was it was another futuristic racer, but just one of my favourite genres. So Quantum Redshift for me. Awesome. Um, but my fav- my favourite game for this genre, easily Final Fantasy X. Okay. Yeah, uh, I, I did play that and win it. Uh, yeah, me too. It's good. It's a good game. Uh, not my. I I preferred the. I preferred the systems of seven and even you know I actually even liked eight. Uh, the draw system. I, I was like okay nine with that. better than eight. I didn't play nine. I, I yeah. That one. I, I just found nine that the main character in nine was just too angry. Mm. Like just Yo, smile. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah, no, that's, that's, he needs to understand it's his final fantasy. He needs to, he needs to cheer up. Yeah, JRPGs yeah. often have that problem though. That <laughs> are giving you the annoying uber little kid who's in the party. Right. I'm gonna make something <laughs> of myself. Yeah. It's like, no, no, <laughs> no go through puberty and then come yeah. back on the quest. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Seventh gen. So now we're talking, we're, we're thin with the herds thin. This is the Xbox 360, the Wii, the original Wii and the PS3. So since I didn't say anything in the last one, I will go ahead and uh, kick us off here. I owned a 360, and uh, I did play a number of Wii games. I can't say, uh, oh well, for Wii, uh, Wii Sports. Uh, it's a derivative answer. Everyone loved Wii Sports, but that was the thing. Wii was really gimmicky, but it worked for Wii Sports. It was a great party game. Uh, the bowling was a lot of fun. That was my favorite sport in it. So for Wii, I'm going to go ahead and say Wii Sports. On the Xbox 360... I uh, got a couple honorable mentions, uh, but I'll start with my, my, my overall pick, which is Fallout New Vegas. So uh, I loved Fallout 3 when it came out. Yes. And that's one of the honorable mentions. Fallout was a game I played on PC. I briefly played Fallout 1. I played a lot of Fallout 2 in college and just, I, I think I only won the game once, but I'd go and I'd make a new character and just experience parts of the game as this. And it was a, a turn-based strategy game. That was the Fallout. So, sort of like how XCOM was and is now. Yeah. But it was so scary to me as a fan of the franchise when I learned in the seventh generation that Fallout was going to come back, but they were going to do it as a first-person slash third-person shooter where you could you could choose the, the viewpoint. I was like, I don't know if this is going to work. Not only did it work, it is a better game than those original games. Fallout 3, I feel, is better than Fallout or Fallout 2. And Fallout New Vegas is better than Fallout 3, with one exception. It was much buggier. It was not as well polished as a set of code. And it's such a big world in both cases. It's understandable. I ran into bugs in both. But Fallout New Vegas had a better story. It, I think the combat felt a little bit better. But it really just comes down to the narrative experience. And I just thought the world felt more lived in and the adventures you went on just more meaningful. But both of them were stellar games on the 360. 
Um, and my other honorable mention, I just want to throw out there for in terms of online multiplayer. While I did play some Halo three online as everyone did, uh, I, my multiplayer game was Battlefield Bad Company two. And I played the first Battlefield Bad Company and the game was good. The multiplayer was not Bad Company two was a new engine. The combat felt a lot more fluid and unlike Call of Duty, which was just the constant deathmatch, this really prioritized working as a team and vehicular combat being incorporated. And so I probably, I've played every Battlefield since then that was a major release. I didn't do Hardline because no, but, <laughs> but I played three, four, uh, and one and Bad Company 2 is still my favorite. Nice. So, uh, Tony, go ahead and you can go next for 7th Gen. Thoughts? I had an Xbox 360. Mm-hmm. It was the only console I had in the 7th Gen. You didn't have a Wii? My wife had a Wii. Oh, okay. Uh, she wasn't my wife at the time. She's my wife now. But Because she, of the Wii? Did <laughs> you marry her for the Wii? No. Okay. Because I was going to say they're inexpensive, but they're the yeah, yeah no no it was it was it wasn't for the Wii. I I married her for other reasons. Okay, and uh, but the Xbox 360 for me was new. Uh, I did play again way more PlayStation or not PlayStation, way more PC games than even console games. But there were two games that really stick out to me on the Xbox 360. The one that is my favorite, you've already mentioned, it's Fallout 3. Now, there's a reason it's not Fallout New Vegas. And the reason it's not Fallout New Vegas is because as much as I love Fallout 3, as much as I was amazed by how they changed it and how well it was, it was like, man, this will be better on the PC. So when New Vegas came out, I got New Vegas on the PC, not on the Xbox. Sure. And that's where I played New Vegas because New Vegas is the best Fallout game to date. Okay. I don't disagree. But Fallout 3, I mean, the, the, everything that I loved about it is what makes you love Fallout in the first place. It's the ambiance. It's the, the, the slightly off, uh, uh, feel of the game. It's the music, especially the music. And, I mean, I remember in Fallout 3 going through, uh, when you had to go through the subways and that first subway section being just amazing to me, playing it as first person. It was so awesome. Uh, Fallout 3, I played two or three times. I, I, Fallout 3, I had all of the DLC on the Xbox and it is also the game that I have a perfect on i have every achievement in that game Um, there's a few others i have but most of them don't have nearly as many achievements as uh fallout 3 did now the other one that it wasn't a great game it was fun as a group and that's why i remember it was one versus 100 oh okay yeah and what I, what makes me remember one versus 100 was I had back surgery in 2009, as I recall, or I think it was around there. Uh, but while I was laid up at home recovering from my back surgery, Dennis and all of our other friends would come over and I'd be sitting there in my, in my lazy boy in front of the TV on the side of the house. And we played one versus 100. 
And we would do, I mean, we play it on game nights and we play it otherwise, but that's what I, I remember playing that game and the dumbest stuff and how I don't think any of us made, I think like once or twice we made it, got picked into the 100. Most of the time it was just being just the insane funds of it. Yeah. And Martin, if you, if you don't know, it was actually, it was a live game where you'd go in mm. and, and, uh, it was, it, you had to do it in real time. Yeah. And the, the 100 people were actual real gamers who were participating. There was an audience portion that could play. And then there was a I've one. I've never heard of it. It's kind of like who wants to be a millionaire right. crossed with some other game shows. It was all like an online game show. And, uh, yeah, it only, they only did it for one season. They yeah. never, and they had a live host and everything. Yeah. They had a live host. A comedian was the live host and. Anyway, yeah, they only did it once and then they pulled the plug. Yeah. Mm. Understandable. It wasn't like great, but for me, it was part of the situation. The concurrent user count was like a hundred thousand people yeah. or something playing it. It was pretty big for Xbox Live. I don't, I never really learned why they decided not to bother anymore. I don't know. I just, because of the whole not situation, the it money, felt it was just, it has a special place because mm. of the situation. Okay. Uh, Martin, what were your thoughts on seventh gen? Okay, so I I owned a PlayStation 3, an Xbox 360, and a Wii. No surprise there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, except with the Wii, I I probably I think I bought a lot of launch titles and and probably had it for a few months later, and then I gave it. Uh, well, I actually sold it to a friend because, like you said before, I just probably found it a bit too gimmicky. Um, but and I'd call out Wii Sports. I thought that was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, but as far as the the other consoles, again, some some great games came out this genre. Um, so like he- Heavy Rain, for example, uh, I loved that game. Probably one of the most disturbing games because I I felt that this game really connected you using the controller to what your character was doing. I I'd, I'd not seen that integration. Um, and probably even not even since where the motions that you do on the the controller are what you would do in real life. I don't, I don't know if you've played heavy rain, but uh, I've seen Al- that you're actually, you've named a fairly controversial pick because yeah. some people really love that, uh, that gaming experience. And then I know a lot yeah. of other people because of how that was felt, it was really more of a narrative than an actual real game. And they didn't feel like they mm. were playing yeah. And so, so yeah. it seems it's very polarized. I've not played it. I've seen scenes from it and some gameplay from it. And so I know it's very polarizing. Yeah. And, and, and I can, I can see with that because I, I, I never actually felt like I was playing a game. I felt like I was in the game. And I know that sounds probably a bit too far fetched, but well done that's kind of, <laughs> that, that's how it felt. And in fact, again, I won't, I won't say it because I don't want to spoil it for those people that haven't played it, but there was one thing in the game. It was asking you to do to your character involving the con- the, con- con- uh, the controller, and I remember just going, "No, I can't do this. I, I actually I-, I can't do this." And I had to actually put the controller down and walk out of the room, and I couldn't go back into the room for two hours because wow. the thing that it was asking me to do just felt like I was doing it to myself. Well, that, I think that was I how powerful they, that game they were was successful then. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. Um, look, other game, Little Big Planet came out this oh, yeah. um, genre as well, which I, oh, yeah. I love. One of game. my, fa- yeah, one of my favorite um, RPGs was called Nino Kuni. Then if you played that, mm-hmm. Bayonetta came out this genre as well, which I loved. Um, Dead Space, uh, Fallout Three, of course. You, you've talked about one of my favorite games. Um, 
for each of the consoles, probably PlayStation 3, my favorite um, was the Uncharted series when that came out. Okay. Absolutely loved it. Uncharted um, games were good. My game of this generation is Elder Scrolls Oblivion. Mm, very good. I enjoyed it more than Skyrim. Yeah. Yep. I, well, yeah. I, I <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll get to Skyrim. Uh, <laughs> Oblivion, absolutely, absolutely loved it. And, and actually, because I, I loved the game as well, but there was a particular event that was happening in, in my life. One, one of my children was extraordinarily sick and was in hospital. And it was the worst of times. And this game just absolutely sucked me in and got me through that period of time. So it was just, it was great to have this really well constructed game in a really good universe with a really good storyline to uh, allow me to escape from the that was going on. So yeah, absolutely love that game. All right. Well, we're going into the, the final generation. Uh, eighth gen, current gen, Wii U, PS4, Xbox One. Uh, I will note that we'll include the Nintendo Switch here. That one was, it was a little odd because, because it's portable and it integrates people like the, the, whoever the people are who assign things to being console generations, it's confused as to whether it should truly count as a console. It's, it's recognized as a hybrid, but if you were to clump it as a console, console. yeah, I agree. So I clumped it in here. It would, regardless, it would be in the eighth gen if it were not portable for sure. So that's where it belongs. Uh, Tony, I know, I know you have a switch. Right. And that's why I was, uh, I didn't do it for you. It's not about you. It's about the science. (laughs) So so Tony can talk about the last gen. Oh, because I want to hear about another boat game. Yeah. Go ahead. (laughs) Go ahead. Is there a boat game out on? How would I know? I don't Switch? know. Switch. I haven't found a boat game yet. <laughs> Probably not. I could really remember any sequels. The last <laughs> boat game was Wind Waker. Mar- yeah, mm-hmm. sailing a boat. I got. I got it. I got the Switch for Zelda. Breath of the Wild. Breath of the Wild. Okay, it's fun. It's a great game. Um, but. It's not actually my favorite game on the game on the system that's out. I mean, there's not a whole lot of games. I don't have very many. There's not a whole lot overall, but it's not my favorite. My favorite is Mario Rabbids. Oh, okay. As embarrassing as it is for me I've to say that, I've heard good things. Fans of XCOM. That's why it is amazingly fun. When I first heard about it, when I first saw the trailers for it and this and that, I thought it was a joke. I was like, how can this be? It is an amazingly fun game. And a lot of it has to do with its, its whole squad based XCOM like fighting. Cause I, I love the XCOM games. I have from the very first XCOM UFO defense back in the nineties on the computer that I played forever. Uh, I've always loved XCOM games. So this plays enough similar with enough fun and interesting twist and this and that. I love it. Um, it's probably, it's not the game I have the most time in on Switch. That's either, it's probably still Zelda, but it could be Stardew Valley. Mm-hmm. I don't include Stardew Valley because Stardew Valley is a computer game that's been ported to Switch. You can include it. But, uh, yeah, no. Rabbits. Mario Rabbits. Somehow. Okay. Well, 
for me, the only console I have this as your notes, I only ever buy one console per generation. Apparently it's my pattern. I'm like a, I'm like a reverse Martin. And, <laughs> uh, so it's Xbox one for me. Uh, overall game is easily the one that we get told to quit talking about because we talk about too much. And that would be <laughs> Overwatch. I was just, and I was a late adopter to it. I just didn't think it would appeal to me. I like, as I noted in, with the seventh gen discussion, I like Battlefield with the vehicles and the larger scale battles and the, di- but the hero class stuff gets at that class mechanic and it just, it works really well for me. So unsurprisingly, it's Overwatch has, has been my favorite of the gen so far. I'll name a few honorable mentions. Uh, Bethesda has been gangbusters this gen. Mm-hmm. I love both of the Wolfenstein games. Uh, not so much the little one that they really, but the two retail, full retail ones. Very, very good reboots of the Wolfenstein 3D franchise. Uh, in survival horror, Evil Within 1, excellent game. Resident Evil 7, excellent game. Both for very different reasons. They're very different experiences. But if you like survival horror, those are both can do no wrong. Uh, they're really good experiences to go with. And... I would probably, I don't really do a lot of sports games, so I don't really have anything in that category that stands out. But you can, if you consider car racing as a sport, Forza Horizon 3 is incredible. And I haven't enjoyed a game so much since, uh, Burnout Revenge, I suppose. So, so those would be my picks for the current gen. And Martin, you get the last word on the last gen. Okay. So I have owned or currently do own, let's see if this surprises you, uh, a PlayStation 4, an Xbox One, a Wii U, a PS, uh, and a Switch as well. I'm shocked. So, but I don't now have in my possession an Xbox One or a Switch. Already done with the Switch. Wow. Uh, well, Switch is actually on loan, but I have no desire to get it back. Okay. Xbox One, I did actually sell off. Well, because, and the way they handled this gen, I I'm just, not surprised. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what it was. I think it was because, well, probably because I was getting more and more into pinball. Okay, so, so there's okay. that. Sure. But I just found that with the Xbox One, I didn't necessarily find that I was getting games that were making me think. Okay. Lots of you know, Forza for sure would be my, my absolute um, game on it. Um, but, you know, it's it's a racing game. There was combat games. There's, you know, first-person shooters, all that kind of stuff. But I, I, wasn't, I was, wasn't really finding anything that was doing anything beyond that. So um, so I've really kept my – my PlayStation 4 really is the, the console of choice now that I really play the most. Um, and I will just mention, mention a couple of games really from that. Um, Dragon Age Inquisition was one of my favorite games that I played. Um, Fallout 4 would have been up there, except I, I put about 40 hours into it and then got a bug in the game where, um, it, it would feel like I was over encumbered, like that I would actually oh, move okay. at a snail's pace. Mm. So, and I, I, I put a ticket in. They said they couldn't resolve it. I've been waiting and waiting for a patch. I don't know. I can't bring myself to come back, go back to the start and play 40 hours that I've already done. So it, it would have been higher had I got to play it. Um, Far Cry 4, absolutely loved, but actually enjoyed Primal even more. Oh, yeah. I did too. Yeah. Just, oh, just I loved what they did to make, a, make that just go down to its roots effectively. Um, 
My second favourite game, again, you can see when I talk about that whole I want a game to make me think, Life is Strange. Yes. You know, there's a, they just released a free little standalone. Um, yes. With a 10 year old boy. I just right, downloaded okay. I it, but that. I haven't. Yep. I know that there's a, there's a, there is a sequel called, or maybe it's a prequel called Before the Storm. I haven't actually played that yet. Um, and again, I, I don't, what I really don't like is playing a game, absolutely loving it, and then a sequel being bad that it ruins my, my thoughts on the original. So I often don't play games with sequels. Um, an example is Assassin's Creed. Absolutely loved the first one and actually probably enjoyed the second one as well. But subsequently, I've not really enjoyed it because it doesn't take me forward. It's just another story or more of the same. So I'm, I'm a bit reluctant to do Life is Strange anymore because I just found that game amazing. But um, so far for me, the game of this generation um, is Horizon on PlayStation 4. Mm. Yeah. It's one of the reasons that I considered getting a PlayStation 4 is to play that game. It's worth it. Do it. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you do it because it is, you know, it's that open world and it's, it's kind of like the whole Far Cry model. Um, but, but again, there's, there's something that really works on this over and above the, the Far Cries, which after a while, so I, I started playing Far Cry 5, um, Recently, you know, where you're, you know, killing the, the Christian cults. Um, but after a while, it just becomes another Far Cry game. You, right. You, you're practically just doing the same map, the same combat, the same liberating this zone and opening up this, but it's now just the, you, you, you even forget that you're battling Christian cults. It's just more rednecks that you're trying to, to get, right? <laughs> that, that, that's, that's kind of what it, what it is, right? Horizon takes that genre and, does two things differently one it adds an amazing storyline where you are absolutely connected to the characters um involving a really strong but feminine lead character which they have just absolutely got that absolutely right um but then they've also created this really interesting world where you've got it's a beautiful world to be in where you've got all these animals that are robots but look like animals and they explain that because when when I first looked at it, I went that that makes no sense. You're you're in this really organic environment. You look like you're a, a tribal person, and yet there's these animals out there that look like robots. How does that even work? And within the first half an hour to forty five minutes of explaining the story, you absolutely get it, and you are absolutely bought into that main character's story. Um, something happens early on that that makes you emotionally connected to her and what's happening. Um, and as they drip feed you this story, it just gets even more interesting as you go along and more of what's happening around you makes sense. Just for me, best game this generation for sure. All right. Awesome. Hard sell. Buy it. Yes. I've only heard good things. Oh, uh, the name of the, uh, the free life is strange. It's almost a teaser game for the upcoming one. It doesn't involve the characters from the first one. It's called the awesome adventures of captain spirit. And okay. Go to the PlayStation store. It's free to download. I hear it's, uh, probably about a three to five hour game. Uh, I haven't okay. tried it yet, but the reviews have been good. It's just, awesome. it's in the universe of life is strange. It's not the same, not the same people or anything though. Okay. Cool. All right. Well, Martin, I want to thank you again for uh, taking time out of your very, very early morning 
and <laughs> spending it with us to talk about pinball and extensively about video games uh, and suggesting to go through about best console games because this was a lot of fun. I yeah, have not reminisced about this stuff in a yeah, long time. Yeah, I know. Same. Um, let's close out the show, Tony. Uh, folks, if you want to write to us, we're not encouraging it, but if you want to, it's eclecticgamerspodcast at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media, facebook.com slash eclecticgamerspodcast. Eclectic underscore gamers on the Twitter and the Instagram. And uh, until, I guess, in two weeks where we're angling to have another guest host on as well. Uh, I'm Dennis. That's Tony. That was Martin. See you guys later.